When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In A Song of Ice and Fire, as in real life, there are cycles of violence. Countries, kingdoms, families, houses, individuals fall into the trap of blood debts, revenge, vendettas, vengeance. Sometimes you call it justice. The fact that there's so many words for it kind of helps sell the point a bit. (laughs) There's so many ways to describe this concept. And it goes on and on, it tends to, as each fresh grievance must be answered. They never feel like it's quite equal, like, ah, now we've settled it. No, it always just kind of starts up again, or maybe not always, but often it starts up again. Sometimes there's a resolution, but sometimes that's just a reprieve, not an actual end of the cycle. It's like dormant or hibernating. Without a third power to intervene, the end only comes when one side is ended, if they don't settle it on their own. But when they don't, that is often the only other way it gets settled. And often there is no third power to step in, no independent arbiter, no central authority to lay out what actually is justice rather than what passes for justice. But whether or not it has any sway, that sentiment always exists. There's always people, even those on the winning side, even on the side with the more just grievance who hold true to the conviction that these cycles must end, that peace is more important than vengeance or anything, really. The Song of Ice and Fire, as in real life as well, has such individuals. As the Green Grace said, peace is the pearl beyond price. Now, she probably has a political agenda when she makes that statement, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. But Galaza Galare and her machinations, or lack thereof, are not the topic of today. It's another advocate for peace, someone who has seen the cycles up close and personal and is at risk of seeing even more. Ilaria Sand is our topic today. She's a mother of four, one of whom is old enough to be joining the ongoing Game of Thrones just now, really, right right as the, right where the story is. And she doesn't want to see that daughter, nor the other three of her daughters become part of that cycle of violence. But, of course, she doesn't have full say over this. That makes for quite a contrast to her lover, the father of these four children, the infamous Red Viper, the man who perhaps most of all personifies these cycles of violence within a single character. You could argue Blackwood and Bracken personify it the most in terms of houses, but in terms of one single person, Oberyn Martell's brief time on screen is all about settling an old score, and his history is has a lot to do with continuing other old scores. So he has a lot of experience with it on both sides, both the receiving end and the giving end. Additionally, Ilaria is a bastard of House Uller, known for being violent, a bit mad, and vindictive, and according to our last episode, hardcore. hardcore. Yeah. (laughs) Her father seems to be more than willing for Dorne to be thrown into war, either over the death of the Red Viper, or perhaps just in general, because some people want war, and he's an Uller. Some people do be like that. But she was even closer to the Red Viper than, well, perhaps anyone, even Doran or their beloved Elia whom they named their first child together after. That's telling you something, isn't it? And despite that closeness and his loss, Ilaria openly argues for peace. She argues that the cycle should end. In fact, it is quite possibly because she is so close to all this bloodiness that she wants to stop it. But that's not all that makes her compelling. 
For the rest of what makes her interesting, well, we've got all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Another character like Oberon that maybe does a lot to personify the concept of vengeance. Maybe she isn't old enough or hasn't gotten wrapped up in it enough yet, but Arya is on that path. Yeah, that's true. Bed at night thinking about it, you know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Her list is is very much that, and we hope that maybe she finds a better path in the long run. But in the in the short term, it's going to be pretty interesting. We'll see what she does. So yeah, Arya is a good example of the opposite end of that, I suppose, or maybe someone that will go through this cycle and decide she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore, which is something we'll suggest for Ilaria. Ilaria may not have born, may not have been born, and and as a teenager, may not have been like this. She may have in fact, become anti-vengeance because of the death of the Red Viper. That may have been what woke her up. That's a topic we will be getting into today, among others. But before we get into the episode, I want to recommend a podcast I've been listening to, and I think you'll enjoy as well, if you like Viking stuff. The History of Vikings, hosted by Noah Tetzner, is available wherever you get podcasts. It's a mostly interview-based podcast, so Noah gets experts, historians, archaeologists, writers, etc., people who know specific things, who have made it their career to understand these things as best as possible. And as I said, I've listened to the show quite a few times. I've binged it and kept up with them on a regular basis, both, <laughs> both cycles of that I've done. Some recent episodes include King Harold Bluetooth, Viking Age Ghosts and Zombies, Weapons and Battle Tactics, The Vikings in Russia, and most recently, in here in the end of 2023, an interview about Viking Yule, the Norse winter holiday, and the Wild Hunt, which is a fun uh, mytho mythological thing that's been used in a lot of different fantasy series and stories, especially uh, The Witcher is the one I'm most familiar with. But anyway, yeah, subscribe to the History of Vikings wherever you listen to podcasts and let us know what you think. Hello and welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode. Glad to have you here. Almost every Sunday, we have live streams at 3 p.m. You can catch them afterwards, the edited version, uh, anywhere you catch podcasts. The video version is well edited, put up on Spotify. And you can get everything available ad-free on Patreon. Sean, what are you drinking today? Some sort of mute juice? Is that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Got the Naked Green Machine, as always, and I've been adding the, the Bolt House vanilla protein in since the the naked protein drinks haven't been available oddly enough yeah. and i got a little magic mind in there nice and good old mountain dew magic mind not to be confused with magic mike i'm gonna keep making <laughs> that joke <laughs> for years yeah <laughs> and i want to make a special uh, shout out here our good friend nina who normally we would shout out her blog here which i'll do anyway goodqueenally.tumblr.com with one l and alley but much more importantly than the weekly shout out, congrats to Nina and her new fiance, James, for getting engaged. Yay. Then there was much rejoicing. I'd right. say that was her Jaharis, but we know we know Nina's not the biggest fan of Jaharis. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Allie got her Jaharis, but not that Jaharis. <laughs> we'll keep it more of a metaphorical James Jaharis. Yeah, James Harris. That's right. Yeah, his name is James. James K. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> so yeah, James Harris. That's right. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Congrats to y'all. We're very happy for y'all and wish you a happy life together. And yeah, three cheers from everyone. Rejoice. 
If you have any questions about anything we talk about today or just how to support, where to find our social media, any of that, you can either email us at westeroshistory at gmail.com or visit historyofwesteros.com. It's all there, all the links, all the stuff, all the suggestions. And at the end of this episode, I'll mention some other ones that relate to things we discussed in this one. Before we get started, our usual trivia question. The answer can be found during the episode, which house did Oberyn Martell foster at? The fostering system, of course, is very common with the nobles, and Oberyn was no different. He fostered somewhere, but where was it? I think we even mentioned it in last week's episode, Hardcore Houses, so you may have come in knowing that. But if not, like I said, it'll be repeated, so keep your ears peeled. Ilaria is not a warrior, nor does she have much political power. She may have had a little bit through Oberyn, but that's gone now. So most of our focus will be on her relationships with other characters as well as what she means to the story, what she represents and all that, which is fairly unique. Doran points out how well he and Oberyn worked together, despite seeming to be so opposite in many ways. Some of that is because, is because Doran's his brother. They have the blood ties and they, they loved each other regardless of their differences and vice versa. But at the same time, you don't choose your siblings. You don't choose your parents. You don't choose your family. Ilaria and Oberyn must have had plenty of important things in common to have a functional relationship that lasted so long. I mean, this is a violent, aggressive man that had a stable relationship with this woman for 15 years or so. I mean, maybe even longer, but that's a long time. And they didn't choose, they, didn't, they weren't forced to be together. This wasn't an arranged marriage like a lot of noble marriages are. So part of what makes her and them unique is this scenario. Uh, they chose each other, they loved each other, and they were the only person in each other's life that were ever like this. They didn't have, neither of them had a comparative relationship that was similar. Uh, well, they wouldn't have had, she wouldn't have had time for one. <laughs> and, and he never stayed with any of his other uh, mothers of his children for more than a little while. Now, usually we do a first mention or first appearance section here, but hers, we're going to place chronologically instead because we want to analyze that scene a lot. <laughs> the one where she first appears but only after we set it up. So let's talk about her birth and early life. Uh, her father is Lord Harmon Uller. We don't know who his wife slash her mother was, not surprisingly, nor do we know if they have other children. So the, the Uller family is a little bit uh, hazy right now. He may not have any other children. His brother Ulwick, Ulwick Uller, it's kind of hard to say, showed up with the Red Viper and Harmon at the party when Oberyn showed up. So they all, those three came together. Oberyn came with Ulwick, Harmon, and Ilaria, but there were no other Ullers. So if they had, a, he had an adult son, he either stayed home to be, there must always be an Uller <laughs> at, at the hellhole or some business like that. Uh, so we're not quite clear on that, but it's, it's notable perhaps that we might learn eventually. So this Harmon Uller is thus grandfather to the four children of Oberyn and Ilaria, who are Elia, Obella, Dorea, and Lareza, who will certainly have a few things to say about throughout this episode. Also important to mention, Sean, did you, when we were starting this episode, did you recall or did it occur to you to consider that the Dornish tend to treat bastards differently? So there's a, already a bit of a dichotomy here with what we expect from a relationship with a, a bastard person. I was even thinking the idea of uh, leaving a son a hellholt. Well, it might not have been a son. It might have been another daughter or some other uh, yeah. heiress. You know? uh, even if we think of them as being uh, hardcore, women can be hardcore. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and 
we see it's it's kind of a theme here looking at Ilaria, how this difference of like a woman knowing her place that concept doesn't is not part of her psyche or her culture or anything so and of course this is this extends to their relationships like their paramours and non-traditional relationships like that just Doran's more accepting of such things so this is something that builds up as important for Ilaria is a lot of things that are relatively normal in Dorne are, you know, culturally shocking to <laughs> Westerosi nobles. Like, oh, she's a bastard. Oh, she's uh, a paramour. Oh, she and she's Dornish and she's a woman. There's lots of <laughs> there's a lot of prejudice wrapped up in, yeah. in this character uh, aimed at her by others, which is part of what makes her interesting. We don't know that she was raised by her father, but because of the way Dornish treat their bastards, she probably was. There's every reason to assume that based on what we know. She, in fact, rather not she, Arianne, assumes that Lord Uller would be angry to hear that Ilaria and her daughters were imprisoned. If if he didn't think much of his bastard daughter, he wouldn't be upset about this, I wouldn't think. So it all lines up pretty well to show that, yeah, she was probably raised there, given a relatively normal education for a Dornish noble person. And despite being an Uller, though, she, you know, and all the thing we discussed about the Ullers, she doesn't seem to have the madness, if, if it's even really a thing. But maybe it's because she was raised in a vindictive, aggressive environment with all these blood feuds that maybe that's why she's on the opposite extreme. She has a lot of upfront knowledge. She's up close and personal and has maybe most, if not all, of her life. I can't remember if or how much we talked about that in the Hardcore Houses, but you can imagine the Ullers might want to play up this... Uh notorious reputation of being mad like let them think we're mad you know we're actually pretty yeah, killed point. here and again even that is something that could change from generation to generation depending on who's in charge or whether or not they're going through war and such but I, I i tend to think that she probably did have a shift after oberon died but it could be that she was raised and the olers in general are a little bit more level-headed than you might think so yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it definitely in, a, in an environment like Westeros or just in Dorne, you, you, there's, there's definitely value in people being afraid of you, even if it's not deserved. So, yeah, like I said, not a warrior, nor is she a poisoner or a courtier or a political animal or an ambitious person. But in spite of that, or perhaps partly because of that, she stands out. See her good education come up when she talks with Sansa about Baylor the Blessed. And this is the difference between naive and and maybe someone who's been around the block a few times, like Ilaria, where Sansa's still very young in this moment. This is a storm of swords, where Sansa repeats the familiar legend that the Vipers refused to bite Baylor the Blessed because he was so holy. And Ilaria's like, no, nah, he was bitten quite a few times. Like his feet were full of the holes. He's not holy. His feet were full of holes from where the Vipers bit him. And it's wild that he didn't die, which, to be fair... You would expect that if he had been bitten, he would have died. So it's kind of like, yeah, he maybe he wasn't. But. <laughs> it's a miracle either way, right? If yeah, you, yeah, yeah. One way to look at it. Like, even when she tries to bring the truth of it to Sansa, I, I feel like she's still recognizing it's still impressive. You have a detail wrong, but it's still very impressive. Yes. It's noteworthy, et cetera. And this is a, a neat point to make. Alari, of all people, talking about Baylor the Blessed, a person who was like overwhelmingly dedicated to peace, like perhaps more so than any, any character we could ever point to. Maybe not even perhaps, just I, I can't really think of someone who personifies peace more than Baylor the Blessed. Now, Ilaria being educated and having that conversation knows that too. And so does Sansa. So it's neat that George had that dialogue come from her, a person that becomes such an advocate for peace. Now, we don't know when she was born, but she has a 14-year-old. So that gives us some sort of range. 
Oberyn was born in 257 or 258. I'm going to guess that she's about eight or nine years younger than him, which would make her about 32. It could be less. I mean, she could be more like 34, 35. I kind of, I'm assuming she's younger than him. Fairly safe assumption, but it doesn't have to be like a lot of a gap. She seems to be intelligent and poised, examples of which we'll see, like emotionally tough, uh, mental, like strong mental health, basically. Most of what we see of her is through Ario Hota's eyes. And Ario is a tough man, right? Strong himself, no doubt. And he notes how strong and good she is. And Doran notes how much Oberyn loved her. So the adults in the room all <laughs> recognize this. And it's noted several times. And these are all characters who we're meant to trust their perspective for, for yeah, a better point. way, right? We're not suspicious of their opinions of hers. Yeah, that's a very good point. Nina notes that as well, that Ilaria isn't afraid to look Cersei in the eye or speak to Sansa on equal terms, even though like some people would be like worried about the hierarchy there. And it's like, oh, Sansa's this, you know, poached by the Tyrells and uh, going to be married to Tyrion and all that. So she still ranks, quote unquote, way higher than Ilaria, but that didn't seem to matter to her. She wasn't intimidated. And I got to think that this is part of what was attractive to Oberyn in the first place, noting this woman's confidence and her just ability to be herself in these environments where there's a lot of pressure to be something she's not, you know, just to, to look down on her. You know, it reminds me of something I kind of realized through the course of that Hardcore Houses episode. I think at the moment we were talking about cannibalism, but just the idea <laughs> in general that part of what makes someone hardcore is it something that would normally get in the way doesn't get in the way of someone that's hardcore, whether that for better or worse, right? Whether it's the cold or hunger or some social construct, like not eating other humans or, <laughs> uh, or in Alaria's case, this idea of her social rank, you know, she's like, I don't care about social ranks. That social rank's not going to hold me back. I, I am who I am and I'm confident with it. And I'll speak to anyone as an equal. Like that's kind of a hardcore mentality to have, right? To not let something that normally yeah. might hold Sansa or, or, you know, some other person might be timid in the presence of some Lord, but not her. She's just as confident as ever. So. Yep. Well said. Good said. Now, interestingly, this makes both of them slightly more interesting, not or not more interesting, but more unique is that. There's only one character named Oberyn in all of A Song of Ice and Fire and A Song of Ice and History. Surely there's others. We just don't, they haven't been revealed. I doubt he's the first person ever named Oberyn in, in history, but he's the only one we know of. Same with Ilaria. There's no other Ilarias in Fire and Blood or The World of Ice and Fire or Duncan Egg or A Song of Ice and Fire. So they're both the only ones with that name for now. So let's touch on just how well Oberyn and Ilaria are written as a couple. He is perhaps the single most representative character of the blood feud concept. As I said in the intro, let's describe just why real quickly. Not only did he get his nickname, the Red Viper, from the Ironwood incident, which is when he slept with Lord Ironwood's paramour, got caught, and then there was a duel for honor. And since they were high ranking, it was just a duel to first blood, not to the death. But then the Ironwood got sick after the duel. And it was whispered that he used poison. The guy died. It was like, uh-oh. And then that the Ironwoods and Martells have had a long-running feud. So that really harmed it. And to fix that, that's why Quentin became <laughs> a squire to uh, the Ironwoods. And a few other things had to be done to, to fix that relationship. And then he reignited the Tyrell-Martell feud by 
Uh, what he by hurting Willis Tyrell, that one probably wasn't his fault. I believe him when he says it was the boy was too young and he got his foot in the stirrup. And that all adds up to me. Maybe the Red Viper went, you know, went hard on him anyway, but he's right that he shouldn't have been. Either way, it re reignited a feud. It just goes to show these grudges. It doesn't take much. It can it publicly. It looks bad, even if he didn't do it on purpose. And it's part of the problem with these things in the first place. Right, Sean? Yeah. Sometimes when there's already this history, something that normally would be overlooked or excused instead becomes an excuse to reignite the past flames. And that is exactly there. And of course, the big one, the one that he's after, the revenge on the Lannisters for Elia, which is you know most of his story. It's almost like an, the inverse of the concept of fridging, where you have often a woman character dies to give pathos to a male character. Well, he died and she's the one that has the pathos, but he was still maybe the more important character. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at the time he was maybe in the long run. We'll see. But yeah, uh, it is kind of an inverse of that concept. Him dying gave pathos to a nation. Yeah, <laughs> the whole country. To, yeah. to everyone. And she's the know. one that's like, no, <laughs> I'm the one that's closest to him. And all of you are wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like often when a woman is fridged, it is the inverse in that the the, the man wants vengeance. And, and, and so it really is a very inverted there. Yeah, it's kind of neat, right? Yeah, I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't really I definitely didn't catch that until taking a look into this topic was like, yeah, it's kind of an inverse fridge, which it's also funny that it's Dorn. Like the hottest country. <laughs> so it's deserting. That's what we call this, right? Or baking or <laughs> fridging. This is ovening. Yeah. You know, another thought, uh, it's especially if he didn't poison that ironwood character, then it would be it would be two instances of him kind of being mixed up in the reignition of a blood feud that wasn't really his fault. But when it comes to Ilya, he's like, now this is real right that he might be extra <laughs> yeah. like those other things should have couldn't have happened or whatever but this needs to happen he might have an extra sort of uh vindication in his mind about this vengeance yeah yeah that's true now to be fair sleeping with a high lord's paramour is probably not <laughs> probably a provocation it's probably fair to call that a provocation <laughs> Indeed, but you could still how he would think. Anyone can sleep with anyone. What's the big deal? Like you could see yeah, how he yeah, would yeah. justify that as something that's not worth, you know, drawing blood over. You know, but yeah, uh, which is part of why they tried to do settle it with just a first blood duel rather. Yeah. But then that got worse because yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so he didn't seem to have much of a pattern, like a type. You know, Oberyn, I mean, the four women he had children with before Ilaria were very different from one another. Obara's mother was a sex worker from Old Town or in Old Town. We don't actually know she was from there, but fairly safe assumption. Nymeria's mother was an aristocrat from Volantis, like very different there. Sorella's is a sailor from the Summer Islands, all you know, really, really different, too. And then Tyene's was a septa. Not exactly sure where, where she, she was from, but. Probably not from Dorne. So that's a, an example of just four women who, you know, maybe they have some things in common, but it's not apparent to us just from hearing descriptions of them. We don't see them on screen. So it's hard to get detail. They're there. all stacked. They're all stacked. <laughs> <laughs> they all got no They're one. all baddies. Yeah. <laughs> Total bad. <laughs> so Ilaria, Nina says Ilaria is also occupied a somewhat liminal space compared to the mothers of his older daughters. She wasn't any of those things. She's not a sex worker. She's not a foreign aristocrat, certainly not a sailor, certainly not a septa or any of these things. So just 
Dornish woman, you know, actual an actual Dornish person. Uh, that's the other thing that's interesting about Ilari compared to Oberyn's lovers is she's the first one that's Dornish, right? <laughs> so that as well is, I don't know if that's anything we can read into that, but it's, it's noteworthy, I suppose. And the fact this may have been part of what drew him to her in the first place. What drew Oberyn to Ilari may have been the fact that she didn't have all this baggage that so many noble women have, which is political considerations. If they have kids together, those kids will have political considerations. They might have claims that need to be addressed. But by making this bastard woman his lover, their children are connected to the royal family, but they're not a threat in that sense. They don't have the same political power that do makes them dangerous. They are dangerous. The sand snakes are, but not for that reason. Necessarily true. Like, do you think that there's no way that those that those bastards would ever have a claim on the on the hellhole through like conniving? Like I feel like they could if they really wanted to. Yeah, I shouldn't say no claim. It just significantly yeah, yeah, reduces significantly it. less. But like yeah. the rest of the Ullers die. They're getting the hellhole. Yeah. If they killed the rest of the uh, the Ullers, say, like let's say little Elia was like, I want this. <laughs> I think she could get it. Yeah, you know, you might be right about that. Yeah, like with enough, with the right maneuvering and proper levels of, of violence, you can, you can do a lot. <laughs> it's a good point, yeah. I wondered for a moment if that might be part of why he, I don't know about the physical attraction could be a million different things, but but there's a million women for him to be physically attracted to. But to start this relationship with a Dornish woman, I wonder if there was some amount of maturing in him, him thinking about his perception as the prince with mm. women from all these other lands. Maybe he needs to bring it home a little. Maybe Doran told him to do that. And even if that was the case, it doesn't, the relationship they end up forming after the fact seems strong. But I, I wonder if there was an amount of him yeah. deciding to settle down with someone from home for the sake of looks, you know? It's possible. And the timing of their apparent meeting is very important as well, which we're about to get to one more, one or two more points before that. How Ilaria and Oberyn met, we don't know. He was fostered at Sandstone, which is one castle over from the Hellholt. So, eh, but I wouldn't call it close. Maybe they met at a tourney or a wedding. There's lots of just high end functions that they both could have been at. Nina has a great theory, though, which is that recall that Oberyn was probably overseas during Robert's Rebellion because there's he just isn't around. There's no note of where he was. So he's probably overseas. And we hear that he briefly tried to raise Dorne for Viserys, Danny's brother, after at some point after the war was over, probably after he returned home from overseas. Now that was put down. They were like, no, stop. No, no, cut, cut that, cut that, cut that. So he, he didn't get very far with that. Intervention, intervention. Yeah. yeah <laughs> all the things just don't do that. Yeah. And he may have gone around to various castles in Dorne to try to see their reaction to be like, Hey, would you join me in this? Let's go. So in, in order to raise Dorne, he's got to go talk to lords. Like we know he was trying to quote, quote, raise Dorne, which means he's going to try to fire them up, which probably means talking to them in person. So if he had gone to the hellhole at that point, there you go. He meets Ilaria on this mini tour of important Dornish castles trying to get something going. So and in fact, maybe that's maybe that's part of what slowed him down. He's like, actually, I would rather hang out with this woman than. What was that? Why was I going to war in the first place? Um, yeah, they clearly have a lot of chemistry, but not just romantic, but sexually. They Oberyn flaunts their bisexuality, the threesomes they have and all that. And 
he might be exaggerating a little bit, but I have no real reason to doubt him. <laughs> you know, it's not like he's, it's not like it's a political advantage for him to point that out. So it just seems like a thing that's his reputations and he talks about, yeah, why not? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not unbelievable at all. This is, this is very speculative, but my theory before that he might've, for the sake of perception, felt like he needed to marry or, or pair with the Dornish woman. If when he's going around trying to get lords on his side to, to raise up, which he might be fired up to fight if he was overseas fighting for some mercenary company and comes back home and he's just like ready to go to battle. Like, hey, let's get a battle. Let's go. Yeah. Fight for, um, but when he goes to talk to the different lords, like, man, you haven't even been home. You've got kids with women from all around the world. We're not you're not really a Dornish prince. He might have faced <laughs> a little bit of that. He might have felt it would give him more legitimacy to have a Dornish woman be the mother of his children. And if we keep in mind the whole plot line, the focus of his plot line, which is revenge for Ely. Of course, that's most front and center in his mind here, returning from overseas to find out that his beloved sister, the one that he was quote unquote inseparable from, that's his main reasoning here. So picture this, he's still in grief, but his grief mostly manifests as anger. He wants to get revenge. He wants to get back at the Lannisters in particular, mostly Tywin but would happily take his vengeance on other Lannisters. So I guess their relationship began shortly after his return to Westeros. It wouldn't likely have started before, since he was overseas or during, right? So Elia was born not long after the death of Elia's sister Elia. Elia San, I mean, was born not long after, maybe only two to three years. So that also fits as a very likely time that their relationship began. And... Maybe Ilaria encouraged the name Elia for their first child to help set her ghost to rest to calm his need for vengeance a bit. It didn't seem to work, but hey, it's worth a try. And that may have been partly what kept them together. You have this connection. You have a, a child that you've named after your sister like that, someone that you loved and were super close, the person that he was most close to in this world. And then Ilaria the place of that became the person he was closest to in this world until they were separated by his death. So he treated her as his, basically like a wife. He treated her with respect and regard, not not in the way that you would maybe have expected, given the way he treated like Obara's mother, for example, or just how he treated people in general. Like he doesn't, isn't someone that treats people very well in his early life and maybe not so much in his later life either, but there seems to be some exceptions. And Ilaria is number one on that list. She can't replace Elia, but she was the loving relationship that he had never had with someone that wasn't, you know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to suggest, even though there is that joke in the book where he's like, yeah, we're, we're as close. I was as close to her as Jamie and Cersei. And Tyrion's like, well, I hope not. And his mind's like, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> some people take that as evidence, like George tongue in cheek saying that they were that close, that they were an incest couple, which I mean, it's possible, but there's really nothing to indicate that besides that this one sideways comment there. So I don't I don't think so. Anyway, the point is going from this traumatizing loss to wanting to start a war to finding the woman, the perfect woman for him and naming their first child after that lost sister is all pretty moving and pretty comes in a short period of time, relatively speaking. So it really seems strong as uh, something to work as headcanon, I think. Nina compares Ilaria to Jane Westerling. Uh, Rob emphasizes to Catelyn that he 
fell for Jane in part because it came during a time of deep devastation. He had just been wounded. He just found out that Winterfell was lost and Brandon Ricken were killed, which of course they weren't, but that's what he thought. And Sansa had marrying Tyrion uh, had come not long before that. So it was just blow after blow after blow. In, in addition to actually being physically wounded, which isn't going to help, <laughs> you know, you have an infection in your shoulder and all that. It's going to make everything feel even worse. So that is part of what started their relationship. And once it started, it, it had that rooting in that beginning, which was so emotional. It's always going to be a part of their relate. Well, it was always a part of their relationship and it, it'll be with Jane until she dies. And it'll be with Ilaria until she dies. It's, there's never going to be a replication of those unique circumstances where they, he was, he really needed someone and then it became the perfect person for the rest of his life. So I wonder how often they talked about it. Like, did they talk about Elia? I, I would guess so. Like you tend to talk about these things with your partner. And, and of course it was on his mind constantly. It was like his life's work almost to achieve justice for Elia. So I'm sure it came up in their conversations, but, it doesn't necessarily mean he discussed his specific plans like, oh, I'm going to put poison on my spear and I'm going to become Tyrion's champion. I don't know that she knew those things, but we'll get to that when we get to that part of the story. It's an interesting question, though, whether or not she how close were like some men keep their their dirty secrets away from their their families or their wife. But some are it's just as much their secret. It's all it's you know, it depends on the couple and, and the family. That might have been part of their bond or why she was so special and important to him. She, you're wondering if he talked to her about Elia, she might be the only person he talked to about Elia. To everyone else, he's this badass warrior and he wants revenge and he's got the spear and may, may talk poison, whatever else, but he doesn't reveal these inner sadnesses or whatever that he has, but he does to her. And that might have yeah. been the thing that really bonded them. Yeah. I mean, I assume he talked about it with Doran, but not like necessarily in a way that was, you're deeply engaging and like they didn't cry together. You know, I don't, I, it's hard to picture princes of Dorne doing that the way their culture is, you know, um, they probably, it probably would have been therapeutic for them, but I, I don't, I don't really guess that they did, but with her, you know, yeah, he could let his guard down maybe and, and be a little more vulnerable. Something tells me he was still pretty rigid about it, but less so, you know, <laughs> he still might've had his moments where he, uh, let some genuine emotion out and that wasn't anger. Not that anger isn't genuine. It's very genuine, but you see what I'm saying, that he might have been softer about it in some moments behind closed doors. And it, D Doran does have the uh, social hierarchy, even though it's different than the rest of Westeros. They still have, you know, let's not fool ourselves. They still have haves and haves nots. They still have elites and, and people in poverty just because their noble system is a little different and different from Westeros. Maybe it's a little closer to something we like. It's still pretty bad. <laughs> it still, you know, prioritizes the people at the top. The aristocrats can still get away with things. Uh, Quentin thinks that the Drinkwater twins were too lowborn for him, for example, and Quentin's a pretty good kid, but this isn't, you know, it's an uncomfortable thought, but he's, he's not thinking that they're, in terms of his ego, he's not saying, oh, I'm too good for them. He's just acknowledging the way these things work and their rank is beneath a prince. And that's, it's just a fact in his mind. It's not a, it's like a judgment call where he's like, no, those drink waters. No, no, no. You know, he doesn't have that thought. It's just a it's like a matter of fact thing. And that is the big question. Why didn't they marry? Why didn't they? There's a lot of reasons, though. There's one right there. We mentioned a few others, which is just he gets to keep them out of politics or at least 
not out, as Ashea pointed out accurately. It doesn't keep them out of it. Clearly, the Sand Snakes are involved. But it enables them to keep more of a distance if they so choose and gives them a little more protection against being embroiled in schemes. Take Sorella, for example. Sorella's off doing her own thing, and she's just left alone. They're like, yeah, let her do what she wants. She's, you know, she's not here. We can't mess with her, and we don't really want to because she's not, she's not really being a problem. And keeping his hand open. Think about John Connington and the value of having the option to marry someone. He's like, oh, as long as his hand is available, as long as he's unmarried, it's something you can offer in a negotiation or to offer to an ally. So having that ability, even if you never intend to use it, just having the showing that you can do it has some value. Just similar to the concept of showing that people making people afraid of you, right? Even though you aren't necessarily that scary, using that to your advantage. It's like, well, if you're not married, well, let's use that to our advantage and say, ah, well, we could, we could float that around and get people interested, get people coming at us to make offers and keep them in our corner that way, just short leash kind of thing. Depending on the position you get into, you keep it available for other people to come to you with that proposal too. It's like a, not only is it a tool for you, but it's a tool for others to come to you. Does that make sense? So yeah, yeah, that's a good you, point. You yeah. eliminate a tool for yourself and other potential allies once you have been married. Unless you're a Targaryen, you just get married again. <laughs> and, yeah, right. Or think about what Tywin did. Tywin was not willing to entertain any marriages for Cersei until the Rhaegar option was completely off the table. He's like, okay, now I got to do something else because I wanted the prince, you know, and the heir to the throne. I couldn't get that. But he wasn't willing to settle for anything less than that. So, yeah, Doran may have believed that having Oberyn available, you know, that gave them an option that would cause their enemies and their allies to treat them a little differently or at least to factor that in so there was there's also no need for him to marry like they don't obviously doran has two sons and a daughter that came before both of them so three heirs and since doran women can inherit you don't have to wait for a son you just there's a kid it doesn't matter (laughs) what what their gender is as long as you know whoever's first born goes that's that so and and alaria might not have cared she might not have wanted to get all that embroiled she might not have wanted to get that deep into it. She may have preferred to keep things at arm's length. And she certainly wasn't raised to expect to marry a big name that wasn't in you know, like Sansa was or like Cersei was, right? They expected it. Laurie never would have expected that. I just want to point out the humor there. It's a, it's a step in the right direction to let any child inherit. And it doesn't have to be the oldest son. But there's still a little humor to like, well, oh, there's a kid. Any kid will do. Like, <laughs> yeah, be still... a kid. Should <laughs> 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 be inheritance in the first place. <laughs> if it is going to be, at least women should be allowed to do it. But geez, what a silly Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so again, lots of reasons there. And we don't know which one it is, but it's not strange, even though we don't know the reasons. Because there are so many available reasons that it there could be, and it might be several of those reasons. She becomes a bit of a peaceful weapon. That's what I've called this next section because it's like the concept of Aikido. The, the, the martial art Aikido is using is, is built around using your enemy's weaknesses against them. They try to punch you and you move out of the way and they punch the wall or you they, they get over balance reaching for you and then it's just that you can slightly push them and then they fall over, right? It's using their weaknesses against them or using their anger against them in this case, their momentum against them. Yeah. In this case, nobles are so 
just uppity and snooty about bastards, it gave the Dornish an opportunity to rub their faces in it and say, ha ha, we can, you have this weakness and we're going to exploit that. If you're deeply offended or made uncomfortable by something, your enemies will take note of that and use it. <laughs> it was like, let's make them deeply uncomfortable. And so they did that by bringing Ilaria Sand. <laughs> let's look at the brilliant scene, which is Ilaria's first appearance, which comes a few paragraphs after Oberyn's first appearance. Quote, He raised a slender hand toward a black-haired woman to the rear, beckoning her forward. And this is Ilaria Sand, mine own paramour. Tyrion swallowed a groan. His paramour and bastard born. Cersei will pitch a holy fit if he wants her at the wedding. <laughs> if she consigned the woman to some dark corner below the salt, his sister would risk the Red Viper's wrath seat her beside him at the high table, and every other lady on the dais was like to take offense. Did Prince Doran mean to provoke a quarrel? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> There's zero chance they didn't realize that they would have this reaction. <laughs> they're like, oh, they're going to be so up, like, what, they're going to be so discomfited and so thrown off, like Tyrion swallowed a groan. They're going to, he's like, they're going to swallow groans. Yeah, <laughs> this is exactly what's going to happen. They saw it coming a mile away. Cause a distraction, cause discomfort, anything, whatever. It's just all the, the tropes of, and expectations of Dornishmen. <laughs> Oberyn is doubling down on his public displays. Like, they're going to expect the Dornish culture to make them uncomfortable. We're going to go full Dornish and <laughs> just really throw it in their faces. And they're going to have to deal happens. with us. They're going to have to deal yeah. with us in ways that they don't like right off the bat. Yeah. Like Tyrion was expecting Doran. Like, wait, there's no litter. And I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you've got me to deal with. But it's not just me. It's my paramour who's going to cause problems, not directly. She's not going to do anything. <laughs> but just being there is going to piss off a lot of people, you know? And he presses the uh, and, and Oberyn backfoots them immediately. He's he, it's, it, you can see how planned this is because he rather than being like, oh, I'm sorry to be causing this disturbance. He goes on the offensive, presses the issue by pointing out how more distinguished his group is, despite containing this bastard paramour. He brought a bunch of lords with him, whereas Tyrion did not. And Oberyn makes a show of it right here. Quote, Prince Oberyn wheeled his horse about to face his fellow Dornishmen. Ilaria, lords and ladies, sirs, see how well King Joffrey loves us. His grace has been so kind as to send his own uncle Imp to bring <laughs> us to his court. The Imp is not a friendly nickname. That's not like his <laughs> accepted nickname. That is an insulting nickname that people get away with calling to him because, well, he's, I mean, it's court. You try to, you're, you're supposed to not react to things like that uh Tyrion does a few times react to it because he loses his temper but this time he's on his he knows ahead of time to be on his best behavior and he's like choking it all back Tyrion also can't like challenge someone to a duel and his father and the sister aren't going to back him up either you know so it, it, it is yeah. <laughs> it's so bad, unfair yeah. for him as he moves through life to have to deal with that but At yeah, I agree. And Oberyn knows this. He knows he can get away with it, not just because Tyrion has these things that he has to worry about, but Oberyn himself is a prince. And he's like, well, I'm a prince. I outrank everyone here and I will say what I want and I will get away with it. But he's also making sure everyone understands what's happening. He's making a public display. He's like, look how, look who they sent. Look how much they respect us, you know? So he's like, like I said, backfooting them, putting them on the defensive 
while he's thrusting on them what he knows is going to make them uncomfortable <laughs> regarding his his paramour. And and as you said, they thought Doran was coming, which means yeah. it should have been an even more regal uh, uh, reception, right? Yes. So mm -hmm. like good maybe point. if they knew point. it was Oberon, they can get away without the king himself or, or a certain presence of royalty. But they didn't know it was Oberon. They thought it was Doran. <laughs> and yet still this was the reception. So it's... Even yeah. worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good said. So next that comes off in this in the scene, Tyrion rattles off all the names, which we don't need to go through. But then he thinks to himself, quote, The names had a nice ringing sound as Tyrion reeled them off, but the bearers were no wise near as distinguished nor formidable a company as those who accompanied Prince Oberyn, as both of them knew full well. Yeah, it was it was unspoken but obvious between them both. And so yeah, again. It's pretty hard not to see this as extremely intentional on their part. Doran and Oberyn knew exactly what they were doing. They had a meeting about it. They're like, all right, this is what we're going to do. This is probably what's going to And if they don't send out a, a big enough welcoming party, I'm going to do this or something like that. You know, may have, they may have planned it in great detail. <laughs> and yeah. And so they played right into the Martell hands by being petty. Like they were, the Martells were maybe almost hoping for this to give them more excuse to, to push the envelope to, uh, use diplomacy as a weapon. Say, look, you guys weren't diplomatic. We're going to hold that against you in addition to their existing grievances, which are quite a bit larger, <laughs> but still. Uh, yeah, so you're right, Sean. If they had sent a larger party, like a more distinguished party, Oberyn would have, it would have been harder for him to complain. He wouldn't, it wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to grandstand the way he did. Or maybe he would have found something to say, but it wouldn't have had the weight that this did. On some level, if they had sent a more distinguished party, Oberon is so it's seemingly hellbent on revenge, it might not have worked. But on some level, that's the respect they're looking for, right? It, it's sort yeah. of like a win-win. It should be sort of a win-win. If they don't send a respectable party, we get to put it, throw it in their face. If they do, like, oh, well, that's what we wanted in the first place. Good start, you know. But, <laughs> but it was not a so, good start. <laughs> no, it was not a good start. So if Doran and Oberon talked about all this, which, again, I very much assume they did, how much was Ilaria included in this discussion? I assume maybe indirectly, maybe not in the same room with them. Maybe Oberyn fills her in afterwards, but maybe directly. Okay, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be off put by your presence. They're going to call you bastard. They're going to snigger. They're going to give you dirty looks. Are you prepared for this? Are you ready to be treated like that? I assume it wasn't just they threw her into it and expected her to just swim without any training. Uh, and I assume they expected she'd be good at it because of her. They had they've known her a long time. Oberyn has been with her for 14 years at this point. He knows her worth and, and she knows his. So I think she was in on it, pretty aware of everything. And and if not, she's smart enough to understand it. But I assume she knew they told her that way she could play it up. You know, she can make it even more so. If they didn't include her, I think it would have been because. They didn't need to. They knew how she would behave, mm. and it's what they wanted yeah. in the first place. You know? That doesn't mean they couldn't still have included her. <laughs> right, right. Like, if she's going to be visibly uncomfortable, it's not going to work as well. They don't want, like, this isn't going to have the effect. They want her to, her, they want her being proud. They want her not to be looking ashamed, because that throws them off even more. Like, she should be ashamed to be amongst us. She's so lower ranking. But when she, the more confident she is amongst people that she's supposedly lower than, the worse it makes them look. And I think they knew that would happen, too. So it's like, yeah, this is perfect. So if she was the kind of person that couldn't handle that, the kind of person that might just run 
crying from the hall because she can't handle the social pressure. Well, they wouldn't put her in that position in the first place because it wouldn't not not necessarily be nice, although that would be part of it, but because it wouldn't work. It wouldn't show up the Lannisters and, and the others the way they want. They want to throw this in their faces. And that's not going to work if Alaria just can't take the heat. But clearly she can. <laughs> Either she can take it or maybe even better. It genuinely doesn't bother her. That's entirely possible that she's just so above it that she's like, yeah, throw me in there. I'm ready to make fools of these suckers. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to to teach, this, bring these folks down a peg. She might relish it. You never know. She might have stayed for a while at court, too. This is a great point by Nina. The intent was for him to be there. He was supposed to take the small council seat offered to Doran. It was going to be his instead, which in turn is now being offered to wait, which one? Nymeria or Tyene? I forget which of them is getting it, but it's still going being passed down to another Martell family member. So that's important because Oberyn would have stayed in King's Landing for quite a while, given the original arrangement, if he hadn't been killed in the duel, which means Ilaria would have too. So this thing was would have been a long-term thing of them constantly poking at people with her presence and being able to use their snobbishness against them. That would have been a long-term plan had things not gone the way they did. And also she could have Maybe talk to some people and, and navigated certain social situations that a, a regular noble couldn't have. You know, go places and talk to certain people. Like these, pro these problems cut both ways. Like I can't be seen talking to this certain person. I'm the lady of, of whatever house, you know, like it would be been unseemly for me to be, but not for Ilaria Sand. So she might have a little more, let's say, uh, roaming space to do things. That might have been the plan. Who knows? Either way, it reminds us of why gives us a good insight into why Oberyn was attracted to her in the first place. She has all this confidence and poise and, and she's, not in, she's not intimidated by being the face of a giant trolling expedition against House Lannister. <laughs> you know, like that's a, it's a pretty intimidating thing to do, but she seemed to just, I'm, I'm all for it. This is probably too tangential to get into very deep, but I wonder how that might have played out given the actions of the High Sparrow when he's arresting Cersei and Marjorie Ooh. for their you know, moral yeah. indiscretions or whatever would have, would Oberon or Ilaria have been arrested too? That might've been yeah. even more uh, complicated and That's probably true. eventually violent, you know? It's a very good point. Yeah. That, that would have not, have, that would have been oil and water mixing right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, compare Ilaria to our good friend, Jon Snow. It was easy enough for the Starks to seat Jon in the rear of the hall during his very first chapter. During the feast for the royal family at Winterfell, the same Lannisters <laughs> and Baratheons in this case, they can't separate the prince from his partner. That's just you can't really do that. Like, no, your partner's going to sit over here and you sit here. That just it's weird. But Jon Snow, they just, yeah, just stick him in the back. Who cares? No, like only like as far as Catelyn's concerned, who cares? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and Ned's not going to make a he's not going to complain about that. And even Jon himself, he was a little bothered by it, but he took it in stride pretty well. Remember, he got drunk. Which he said, oh, I wouldn't be able to get drunk if I was up there. But he was he was he was miffed for sure. Or think of Sansa masquerading as Elaine Stone. She couldn't sit at the dais while in disguise because it wouldn't be seemly as Littlefinger's bastard daughter. But if she were truly open as Sansa Stark, then that would be the obvious place for her. So we see this sort of example in multiple places. I think it's pretty well attested to and. Uh, these rules, <laughs> right? These unspoken, unwritten rules. Well, they're, they're spoken. Unwritten rules. They're very much spoken, but <laughs> sometimes they're spoken very bluntly. So it's neat that in both cases, Cersei is at the center of concerns here, the one who is they're most worried about offending or most excited about offending in the case of Delaria. <laughs> with John, they're like, oh, we don't want to offend her with, with Delaria. Like, yeah, let's offend her. <laughs>
So, of course, Cersei is not the only outspoken person at court. Quote. He had settled Prince Oberyn and his lords in a corner fort facing the city, as far from the Tyrells as he could put them without evicting them from the Red Keep entirely. It was not nearly far enough. (laughs) Already there had been a brawl in a flea-bottom pot shop that left one Tyrell man-at-arms dead, and two of Lord Gargolin scalded and an ugly confrontation in the yard when Mace Tyrell's wizened little mother called Ilaria Sand, the serpent's whore. I mean, damn, right? Like, that's, yeah, I mean, we know (laughs) Lena talks a lot, and she says what's on her mind, but that's, even for her, that seems pretty blunt and and nasty. (laughs) So, and she's saying that to diminish her, because, of course, in Westeros, uh, a sex worker is at the bottom of the social ladder. So she's trying to compare her to that and say, that's where you belong. You that's how, you know, you appear in this company as someone who doesn't belong. So she's trying to emphasize and exaggerate that by saying that. She also probably is doing a little bit of win in Rome, do as Romans do. She's got to seem like she's on mm. Cersei's side if she wants to get what she wants out of Cersei. So that's a good point. That's a good point. I think she probably feels it somewhat earnestly as well <laughs> yeah. because yeah. she doesn't like the Tyrell. I mean, she, I mean, she doesn't like the, the, the Dornishman. She's an old school reachman, <laughs> reach woman and doesn't, yeah, doesn't like the Martells, doesn't like what happened, what Oberyn did to Willis, even though, you know, even though she maybe was aware that it wasn't on purpose because she also makes a comment about Willis going into jousting too soon. So it's almost, it was, it was an actual agreement with Oberyn, but it was sort of like, you could take it as tacit, like, yeah, Mace was a fool for putting him into jousting too soon. He wasn't that kind of boy in the first place. He's not. He wasn't Loras. Loras, go ahead. He's that talented. But Willis isn't that kind of kid. So in in certain companies, she might make that admission. But she knows yeah. the party line, if you will. We don't like the Martells because mm-hmm. of what Oberon did. You know, she's that's the public stance she's going to take. So. Yeah. And she might be trying to provoke a reaction, too. And she knows that the Tyrells have like a full army at court, whereas the, the Martells brought like 300 men. So it's not, I mean, Tyrion points that out too, and, and Oberyn is not bothered by it, but <laughs> it's not irrelevant. <laughs> she probably also knows that Oberyn's really there for Tywin and Gregor, right? That's what yeah. he's really yeah, there for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if she can get him riled up, right? Even if he's mad at her, that anger will still be diverted to the Lannisters, which is good for her. Mm. Like almost yeah. every angle... <laughs> Whether it was personal or calculated, it was it was a, a good play for her to say that in a way that it would get back to them. And she recognizes that they're making, she's smart enough to know that they're making a provocation. So she's like, well, I'm going to provoke them right back. You know, like, well, we two can play at this game. You know, she's, she's obviously on top of the subtleties of diplomacy, and even though she's not very subtle herself. <laughs> she understands it quite well. So, so this provides us such a window into different forms of prejudice. This, this section is called a window to prejudice. Ilaria's time at court reveals a lot of how mainstream Westerosi looked down on Dornish. Like specifically, we know that they have these prejudices, but it really comes out with her because they're against women. They're against bastards. They're against Dornish women. <laughs> so it's a triple threat here. Uh, this quote from Sansa was absolutely full of that sort of learned prejudice and other revealing things. For example, quote. Shay had told her that this Ilaria worshipped some Lysene love goddess. She was almost a whore when he found her, milady. her maid confided, and now she's near a princess. Sansa had never been this close to the Dornish woman before. 
She is not truly beautiful, she thought, but something about her draws the eye. Now that is a very telling sentence from Sansa, isn't it? Is that like, well, I've been taught what beautiful is, but I think she's attractive. So she's kind of at odds with what she's been taught. Traditional beauty is like standard Westerosi beauty standards, which is not the same as Dornish beauty standards. So she's still kind of like, yet I still like, you know, so she's wrestling with that, I think, internally. And that's that's kind of interesting. So you have several different opinions here. You have Sansa's opinion, you have Shay's opinion, and you have what both of them have been taught. And they've been taught very differently because they come from extreme opposite ends of society. We just talked about how sex workers are at the bottom. Sansa's near the top, right? And so you have a conversation between these two types of people, which is a rare thing. And you see this, it's like, it's gossip in a nutshell here. Well, no, it is gossip. And you have to remember why Shay's even there in the first place. She's been hidden as a maid, right? She's masquerading as a one of the maids because Tyrion's trying to keep her, was afraid of keeping her in the manse and all that. So anyway, Shay is not as, as young as Sansa. It's important to keep in mind that she is very young though. They're probably both teenagers. Shay might be like 20, but I think, I think she's 18 when we first meet her. So I don't think it's been a full two years till we get to the scene. It's, so it's very interesting that Shay is disparaging Ilaria's social status by saying she was almost a whore, given that was Shay's profession. And even more ironic because Shay is, this is what Shay wanted from Tyrion. She's like, I wanted to be almost a princess that was brought up from being a sex worker. She asked Tyrion, he's like, I could be your lady. I don't have to be, I don't have to marry you, but you could give me jewels and all this other stuff. And I could be by your side. Like she wants that. Uh, so this is, she's projecting a little bit here that Ilaria got the thing that she wanted. I think, I think there's a little of that, a little bit of jealousy here, but she's just wrong. Ilaria was probably not ever almost a whore. Like that doesn't, we just went through talking about earlier how her, all her father almost certainly raised her and yeah, so there's no almost there at all. I don't, that's, that's just pure gossip, I think. Or maybe it's because of things like what Olena said. You know, maybe it came from that. Like the telephone game, she calls her the serpent's whore. Someone else just repeats it a little differently. By the time 10 people have repeated, it's just, yeah, she was a sex worker in Dorn, you know? And, you know, not just Olena, but Cersei and every other lady would all want to denigrate Ilaria. Yeah. And she is getting in that perception and, and maybe herself wants to denigrate her, right? Because she doesn't want to think that she did better than me, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, as well, Oberyn's first child was with a sex worker. So maybe like people are mashing up the different stories about him and conflating like that's who he likes or something. That's who he goes after is sex workers. I don't know. Yeah. So there's all this, these stories about him that, that will leak into what people will think about her because he's the big prominent figure. Uh, so it's very sad for Shay that she's projecting like this and uh, her upbringing was, was terrible. I mean, she was beaten and, and raped by her own father, whereas there's no indication Ilari had any of that. So uh, it's understandable that Shay has this because she's traumatized and she would want to rise higher in, in this world, no matter what. And to be so close to that and not get it is probably pretty torturous, especially given what ends up happening to her later. Ilaria didn't necessarily have a lot of career options, but she didn't have, uh, she wasn't at risk of, of being like in the gutter like Shay was. That is another thing too, probably in, I don't know, mainland Westeros, most bastard born girls are probably destined to be sex workers. It might be a semi-safe assumption that she was if they don't understand hmm. the difference in Dornish culture, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Now, we know that that's pretty rare for noble bastard girls to have that be their only option because there's yeah, plenty of, you know, yeah. they often find, they often get married to knights or 
people of still very high social status, but not as high as a tr- trueborn child would get from a noble family. Like if if Shay only knows that her name is Ilaria San, she might not know that she's from the Oler house. So yes, absolutely, you're right. And they and again, like you said, there's all this confusion and prejudice about Dornish bastards versus other bastards. So Sansa almost certainly had an even better education than Ilaria, but not by as wide a margin as Ilaria had over Shay. Shay's education was almost non-existent. Shay's education was all, you know, in the streets, like learning by being out there and interacting with people. Like she wasn't in classrooms or didn't have teachers, et cetera. You could argue that Shay knows more about the world than Sansa. Sansa in some way she definitely about, does. Like, you know, history or elite politics, but Shay probably knows more about the how to make it through the world as a normal human. <laughs> Especially at this point, because Sansa's biggest moments of growth seem to come after she gets away. She starts to have, I mean, she has some pretty big ones, but most of her growth really starts when she gets away from the Red Keep. Even though she's still under Littlefinger's uh, thumb, she has more room to be herself and learn and think and and reflect on the Red Keep and and things that happened before and, and maybe do some things a little differently. The Lysine love goddess thing is another bit of just prejudice-ish type thing here. Presumably Shay was gossiping with other maids and that's how they the news of what's in her chambers comes out like they're going to go clean her chambers that's not where Shay would be because Shay is assigned to lawless stokeworth right so nothing to do with these dornish guests as but again all the servants probably talk to each other and they would talk about something in her chambers they found that would indicate uh, she worships some lysine love guys now they could have gotten that wrong though there's nothing to corroborate the story we don't see anything of it later but there's nothing. It's not like a negative thing. There's nothing to I don't doubt it. I just question whether they got the details right. Maybe it wasn't Lysine. Maybe it's not love goddess. What type of love are we talking about here? All forms of love or is it like a god of a sex goddess or like a romantic love goddess or, a, you know, familial love for your children or your family? Like there's lots of types of love, y'all. So well, I'm kind of just picturing that Ilaria had some kind of horny statue in her yeah, maybe she said a like, dildo and they're like that's a lysine love goddess they've never seen one before you know what is that that's, that's what they call it these days <laughs> it's called a lysine love goddess <laughs> they hand me the llg here <laughs> but no uh, i could see her having one of those like you know little nude statuettes or something like decorating her room and then they think she worships it and she doesn't even worship it she just likes it or something yeah it might not yeah we do see her praying at another point but it's just like she's whispering a prayer to herself like you can't really glean anything from it so even if she did worship it and it was more innocent you know it was love between mother daughter or something like that it's still not one of the seven. You can still why it would be like a, a hot topic. Exactly. You know, outside yeah, of your t- weird religion, you know? Right. Yeah. It's again. So that's why I'm putting in this section about prejudice. Like, oh, this weird foreign God she's worshiping. It's like, well, what if this, like this God might be like a good, like a, a good suggestion. Like the, what this God stands for might be kind of a positive thing, but it's not the seven. So no, no, no. And that just makes her all the more reason to gossip about her. So they have all these things to gossip about, how she's Dornish, how she's a paramour, how what her, her past is, how she worships these strange gods. Just so many things to gossip about. And that's why, again, it just comes back to you got to be tough. You got to be tough minded to be the object of all this gossip at court where people aren't too shy about they're not going to, like, make sure you don't hear. They kind of will inflict it on you willingly, you know, like 
intentionally let you hear like whisper loudly you know like that kind of thing they're not keeping it under wraps like you have oh olena calling her a serpent's whore and things like that this is not <laughs> this isn't super subtle here so and again sansa's especially someone who's very young hasn't learned that oh everything isn't just what you've been taught or oh the set just People worship other gods in this world, Sansa. It's not that strange. Shay, too, you know, it's not that strange. It doesn't mean bad things. But she's a young teenager and is very sheltered still. Her naivete is only starting to come off at this point. So it's very possible, though. Like Nina says, yeah, it's absolutely possible. This is true. Uh, maybe it's not Lysine. Maybe it's just some other foreign god that they just misidentified. But either way, like, it's not weird. It's not abnormal. Not, it's not scandalous. But it is uh, it is interesting and it causes other people to see it that way. And it might be just like the fear thing might be like the reputation thing. Maybe she wants people to think she worships weird love gods or goddesses or what have you and to enhance her reputation. She's supposed to be this polarizing figure at court that's supposed to rub people the wrong way. So maybe lean into it a little more. Maybe spread these rumors. Maybe like, yeah, yeah. Larry does worship a strange Lysine love goddess. They want people to think that. It's entirely possible this was part of their part of their play, part of their overall strategy to stand out at court before things took a dramatic right turn. <laughs> so there's a lot of different things there. And in that one scene, just Shay making those like three sentences and Sansa's thought, just in it, there's so much wrapped into it. It's another testament to how deep George's world building is that we can glean so much from that without reaching. I mean, I don't think any of those things are reaches because they reflect real world values and real world concepts in ways that we're very familiar with. I keep coming back to the the attractiveness thing, like how Sansa's like, but I kind of like how she looks, but given what I'm taught, this isn't beautiful, but it kind of is. Like she's, I it's super interesting to me that she's wrestling with that. A girl at her age, like hasn't been taught what beautiful is, but she should be able to do what she wants and be like, well, I get to decide what I want looks good on me, not what other people think, you know? And Alaria, she's kind of confronted with that by by someone that has that freedom. And it's like, huh, it's it's puzzling to her. She doesn't hate it, which is a credit to her that she's not like turned off by it or prejudiced too much. But she's she's just confused by it because she doesn't exactly agree with Shay when Shay's like, oh, this is she just kind of like, OK, well, you told me that she's not like, oh, yeah. Oh, how awful. Yeah. She's just kind of like listening and taking it in and pondering it. You know, it is. I, I have this is like maybe a slightly awkward story, but, you know, my granddad, you can imagine past generations had much greater levels of racism than we have now. I think we're growing and learning. And, uh, and he had a neighbor who was a black guy and he would point out, he's a good guy for a black guy. Like he needed to put that caveat in. He still had it in him that yeah. <laughs> black people aren't really good, but this one is different. You know, it's, it's similar to how Sansa is like, well, Dornish people aren't really beautiful, but, but she is beautiful. It's like, it's uh, it, she's having to reconcile this ingrained racism or prejudice that's in her with this reality that she's facing you know yeah because it doesn't actually it's not actually true to her or it isn't true to everybody it's like no i find her pretty beautiful actually why does this not fit with what i've been taught well it's because beauty standards are crap (laughs) 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 i mean not entirely crap but they're like they're not meant to be rules they're meant to be at best they're meant to be guidelines at, at best you know you're supposed to ultimately you know do your own thing and or whatever makes you comfortable, which might mean going with the standards. That's, that's valid to choose. But Sansa was never taught that that was an option. <laughs> She's just taught that there's this the one way. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick uh, 
break for roughly the middle to answer some questions, do a few shout outs, and we'll get back to the Purple Wedding, Tyrion's trial, the actual duel, and what comes after, including our predictions for what might happen to Ilaria by the end. Sean, tell us who you have for us this week to give fun shout outs to. Well, I've uh, generally I've been bouncing back and forth between the oldest and newest patrons, but I want to give a shout out to someone who's been with our last couple of patron calls. Uh, let me say this. This is a long one. Lord Giuliano of House U, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the Omni Knight. Like that I one. like the Omni Knight as a title quite a bit. It, it both sounds like a, like a rainbow because it has it's all the colors, but also it can have a lot of other connotations like just multifaceted or jack of all trades. You know what or... it makes me think of? What? There, we, Aziz and I play this game called Fire Emblem, and sometimes you have like certain units that like are very versatile. They like can use an axe and a lance and a sword. True. And I call them like my Swiss army knife. Uh, <laughs> Swiss army Swiss knight. knight. I mean, that's what I meant to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. I call them my Swiss, Swiss army knight, but which they are basically like the Omni knight. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. And as a hand of the queen or king, you would want someone who's got a broad skill set, I would think. So that fits. <laughs> so we've still got some others to list off real quick here. Willard the Slumbery of Goat's Tree. Flash the leather. Slumbery. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Lady Priscilla of the White Spear, Master Minotaur of House Gardener, our grass is always greener, <laughs> and nice. Liana Snow, the Raven in Winter. Ooh, that's a that one touches on a lot of uh, bases there. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you can get your own patron name by joining us at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. We've been over the last year plus, we've been making lots of changes to our Patreon page adding more bonus episodes, adding some, some simplicity to the navigation and just trying to make it all better all around, make it more worthwhile. So go there if you're interested in joining and getting access to our bonus content. We really appreciate it. And soon we're going to have a lot of voting on a lot of episodes. We want to try to get really far ahead. So we're going to have what's I can roughly call a topics moot where we pick a lot of topics in a relatively short time. I haven't quite worked out how we're going to do it yet. We've been kind of talking about it on our uh in our meetings. So you're going to want to sign up to be a part of that and get all the other things that come with being a member as well. Just be careful not to mix up the topic moot with the topic mute. Don't want to mix those. <laughs> <laughs> Dornish Dame says, this has me in mind of Lara Rogare and the prejudice she faced for not worshiping the seven, which of course came right after the dance of the dragons. And we've talked about that a bit. And a couple of times we talked about during the, the episode on lease and that is also something Nina pointed out. So good call, both of you. Yes, Lara Regari faced prejudice specifically for being Lyseni, for worshiping Lyseni gods. Now, she also didn't even learn the language. So the, not to say that's a good reason to be prejudiced against her, but it was just the, the weight of that prejudice was larger because she didn't try to become part of the Westerosi culture or was unable to. And then she, didn't, she never really liked it. She left, right, and, and including leaving her children behind. So yeah, she really didn't like it, <laughs> but there's no indication that Laria doesn't like it. Uh, if she didn't like it, well, she's showing she just she wasn't showing it. She was poised and putting a brave face forward. Anders Graham makes the comment "mascar mating." <laughs> is that like masquerading? Masquerading. Like yeah. Masquerading. Yes, Jay's masquerading. It <laughs> <laughs> really made, made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. <laughs> so the purple wedding from Tyrion's trial. Cersei solves the seating issue actually pretty cleverly. Cersei is clever. We, we, you know, she's somehow that amazing mix of, of 
stupid and clever. She does. She's both. <laughs> I mean, she's not stupid when she's not angry, but she's just angry so often. <laughs> she, I think that she's intelligent but unwise. Yeah, that too. And, and prone to acting when she's angry, which is part which of being is unwise. unwise yeah. <laughs> yeah, that snowballs really, really badly. So this case, she solved it pretty smoothly. She just put another table in and put it right below the dais. So it's very much a place of honor, but it's also very far from the Tyrells. Tyrion notes that it's as far from the Tyrells as possible. So it's actually pretty smoothly done by, by Cersei there. And it makes sense to put all the Dornish at that one table. So you don't have to yeah. have the high Dornish with Ilaria up with the other high nobles. So it, it's something that makes sense. And it's yeah. it hard to argue against and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so she's there at the Purple Wedding, of course, like so many others. She isn't really noted during the event, except for that we definitely see her. But she's not really a part of, of course, the scene of Joffrey and Tyrion and Joffrey dying eventually. But the other things that precede that, the, the, the scene they were making and Joffrey dumping his wine on Tyrion and all that stuff. So it's it's the scene is through Tyrion's point of view. So. We, oh wait, is it? Or is it through Sansa's? Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I always forget. But it doesn't matter. Neither of them take much note of Ilaria. Uh, but she's there for sure. So she sees Joffrey die. Uh, she sees Joffrey behave too. And that's like, whoa, that, that guy's going to be the king. They must have heard things. But seeing him behave that way in front of a bunch of people, probably for the first time, is like, whoa, dang, <laughs> that's, that's bad. But she may have sympathized with Cersei throughout, despite everything. Because as a mother, seeing another mother lose their child right in front of them is like, well, uh, even uh, even as much as I support my husband's revenge, <laughs> this might be, this is rough. Like, I didn't need to see that. But maybe she relished in it. We really don't know. She might have been like, yeah, that kid deserved it. You know, we, <laughs> I don't want to go too far in what I assume about Ilaria, especially because one of my theories is that she may have done an about face after Oberyn's death and realized that may have been what set her on this anti- blood feud cycle uh, before she may have been like yeah yeah revenge good yeah get him i wonder if it may not have been a full about face if she was already starting to turn after seeing joffrey die in cersei's arms you know mm, maybe maybe that started it maybe yeah. the, the, maybe that added some weight to right. what came shortly after she uh, starts to think about and- how where this is going and she might have one of her kids dying in her arms and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Like she cares about, she might have cared about the cycle of violence, cared about getting revenge, but she cares about her own children more than that. Like, well, my, if it's if it was one or the other, then I'm absolutely, there's no choice at all. I'm picking my children and peace over getting revenge. So yeah, so that's, you're right. You're right to point that out, that she may have pictured herself in that spot and she could easily see that future given the, the violence between these families and the stakes in play and the, the, the personalities in play. People like Cersei and her paramour Oberyn and, and Gregor Clegane and Tywin Lannister. These are ruthless, brutal, violent people. So it's not hard for her to imagine that could have some blowback on her family. And, you know, Oberyn wasn't necessarily there to specifically kill Joffrey. But if Oberon had his way, if he could snap his finger and have every Lannister die, he would probably do it, right? Oh, yeah. And that's exactly why Elia and her kids are dead, right? And so yes. she yes. sees this is the same thing. You know, if there's any piece of logic going through her brain, that's the path that this is headed on, that someone wants to kill her kids, you know? Yeah. And she'd rather just stop this whole thing. Their, their rank didn't stop, didn't save them. Like, Elia was, was basically the, the heir to being queen of Westeros and that didn't stop her. It didn't save her. 
even though like like normal hostage situation, normal like nobles are protected and given for ransom, didn't protect her. You know, it just goes to show that you can't count on those things. So Oberon visits Tyrion in his cell. And before he offers to be his champion in public, he does it there in private, recall. He mentions the possibility as well of marrying Cersei, because remember Tywin was floating that idea as a way to sort of stitch things back up. It's like, you could, Cersei, you could marry Oberyn, or you could marry Balon, Greyjoy. And she's like, what? Are you kidding me? And and Jamie, when he hears, is like, are you kidding me? He has the same (laughs) similar reaction, like, what the hell? And... You know, politically, it all it kind of makes sense, but it's like, what the? How can this is? These marriages will be dysfunctional as all hell. And so he brings it up as like, you know, uh, Ilaria thinks we should say yes because he wants her in our. She wants her in our bed. She's never had a blonde royal before, or whatever it is he says. It's like he, she's Randy, just thinking about it, you know. And and <laughs> but then Oberyn pivots to the. Corgile scorpion bed murder story, which he would know very well considering he was fostered there, right? And it's also just a famous story that's come up many times on our show. He says, I'd rather have those scorpions in my bed than Cersei. <laughs> so he's not dumb. <laughs> I don't know. I differ with Oberon in many ways, and this is one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would also rather have so I'd take the Cersei risk than the hundred scorpions. <laughs> yeah. Uh so. So at the trial, when it came around, did Alaria already know this? Like she was presumably there in the crowd, though we don't see it. She was definitely there for the duel, obviously. But for the actual trial, I don't know if she was there. Probably, though, because her, you know, Oberyn's there as a judge. She's a dignitary at court. It's a big event. You know, she probably was there. So but did she know what he was going to do? Did she know he was going to stand up and go, I actually I'm quite convinced I will stand for Tyrion as his champion. And everybody's like, what? It goes crazy. The room explodes. Was she was she like waiting for that moment? Like, I can't wait for this. Like, I'm going to see the <laughs> she's like sitting there savoring the moment. And uh, or she was just excited to see how it all played out. I don't know. But she might not have known. She might not have seen it coming. I she don't think she her. did because I'm not sure Oberon knew. I'm not sure how certain he was that he was going to make that play, much less had he talked about it to her. I can imagine maybe they had had a discussion, but not. I have decided this, you know, I think it's something he was batting around in his own head. I don't think he knew it well enough to have told her he was going to do it. Yeah, because he, he maybe he wasn't sure what was actually going to happen, although he had already told Tyrion he was going to do it. So I wonder, maybe, maybe it's possible she even was part of the planning, like gave him some of the ideas. Like she bounces, he bounces ideas off. Or we have no idea what that part of their relationship was like. So I, I just don't know. I'm guessing probably not to that level of like, you should poison your spear, you know, and all of a sudden, I'm not sure. I don't think she had that level of involvement, but it is possible. We can't throw that out, right? I think if she had seen Gregor ahead of time, she would have told him to poison his spear. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because she definitely hadn't seen him ahead of time. Yeah, she seemed surprised, she's, yeah. Yeah, she's like, you're going to fight that? And he goes, I'm going to kill that. So clearly she hadn't seen him yet, which makes sense because Cersei, when when they say, I'll stand as champion, Cer- you know, Cersei says, Gregor has returned to the city, you know, a day or two days ago. So it was very recently he has come back. So it, it's it makes sense that he wouldn't she wouldn't have seen him yet. You know, this reminds me of another thing too that might have shifted Ilaria's stance. Having gone to King's Landing and seen the resources at the Lannisters' disposal, she might have dreaded how the war is going to go. 
right? Mm, like, yeah, maybe, maybe. They, Oberon took out Gregor, but they might have another Gregor. They've just got knights and horses and money and people and everything all around. Like, they, we, we just don't have these resources back in Dorne. I don't know if we can stand up. I mean, maybe we can. We stood up to the dragons, but how many people died standing up to the dragons? I don't want my mm-hmm. daughters to die. I don't want this to happen. Yeah, yeah, well said. Now, also during the duel, she says, because she's right next to Tyrion. They're next to each other. Obviously, they're a lot. They both have a lot <laughs> in play on that duel. Uh, she says, Oberyn is toying with him at one point. And Tyrion's like, that's a very stupid thing to do. <laughs> but <laughs> but Put him on your own time. My life's at stake here. <laughs> it's not really. He wasn't really toying with him. He was trying to frustrate him and get him to yell to admit his guilt through through that for that frustration was a setup to make him admit his guilt like say her name say her name say her name over and over and getting him getting in his head and all that and wounding him and making him tired and just yeah until he just loses it entirely he was partly toying with him because there is sort of a psychological advantage um and he does need to wear him down but also he could have just killed him he got to a point where he could have just killed him he didn't because he wasn't trying to save Tyrion's life he's trying to get this emission of guilt and yeah, he didn't uh, give a crap about Tyrion yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did not care he's like yeah I'll save you but he's more about like another thumb in Tywin's eye to, to save Tyrion yeah. he's like oh I can up I can kill Gregor and piss off Tywin like in a separate way like it's already gonna piss off Tywin but this is a, a double whammy yeah so it, it, it fell into place so well except for the except whole that it didn't <laughs> dying part <laughs> yeah <laughs> So the focus is, of course, on Tyrion's reaction, obviously. It's his POV, and he's very much concerned for his own life. But as he's throwing up his breakfast when Oberyn's skull is crushed, Ilaria's wail of terror, uh, you know, is in his... He, he notes it as he's, you know, condemned, because they're right there. So as unique as her place at court was in the short time she was there, Oberyn's death is arguably even more compelling in terms of what it does to her character. Partly that's just because we don't know what's coming. There's, you know, the mystery is always a bit more compelling in some ways. There's always the, the allure of, of the unknown. I mean, George wrote the Red Viper to be killed, as we said. He just did it so well. He, he, he almost, he, he outwrote himself. The reason that he cites, and there's other reasons, of course, but one of the loudest reasons that George cites for the five-year gap being scrapped is the reaction to the Red Viper's death. He's like, I wrote this character to be de- dead, but I did it so well that I can't skip the reaction to it. I can't do it <laughs> yeah. in retrospect only. <laughs> Oops, made this character too interesting. It's like the Boba Fett effect of like, <laughs> this character wasn't supposed to be important, but everyone loves him so much. We can't, yeah, we can't. George fell for that himself. It's like if Spielberg had decided that about Boba Fett, he's like, you know what? Boba Fett's too cool. I got to expand his role. It doesn't matter what the fans say. I'm, it's cool that the fans agree, but I'm the one that thinks Boba Fett is cool. So I'm doing this. It's the same thing as George is like, man, this Red Viper is just, he's too cool. He, he didn't climb back out of the Sarlacc pit cool, but <laughs> you can't really come back from that. Crushed skull. That's not very ambiguous. So anyway, the political shift is gigantic. Doran's reaction is gigantic, but the most personally impacted is her. If anyone alive knows his secrets, knew the man truly behind the poison spear, behind the the threats, behind the anger, it would be her even more than Doran, I think. And I don't think Doran's going to be alive all that much longer anyway. So with 
it won't even be a question probably in a little while. So she obviously doesn't stay at King's Landing very long because she has to bring home Oberyn's body. Much grieving from her along the way, to be sure, and trepidation. She probably, in the back of her mind, knows that, oh boy, a lot's going to happen now. His death is going to be, there's going to be a big provocation. She knows her, she knows her countrymen. She knows they're going to react strongly. She knows they're not just going to take it lying down. So that's, it's a double, another double whammy that she lost her, her lover, the only person in the world that, that meant this much to her other than her children, which is a different sort of love, obviously. And she fears for her country now. You know, this, this all backfired so badly and uh, the, the, the outcry is going to be so severe that it, it will probably, if not certainly, lead to more violence. So I just can only imagine, I don't want to linger on it because it's not a very pleasant thought, like what's going through her mind. It's a procession back to Dorne. It probably wasn't like, a brisk trot. They move slowly, probably. And, you know, that's how mourners work, right? Usually just go kind of nice, easy pace. And uh, people follow along and, and express their grief. You go, you know, that's kind of the point. So she's the one to bring him back to Sun Spirits. It's actually Gregor's body that causes arguably even more of a stir in Dorne in some ways. Uh, less in some ways, more in others. So yeah, let's let's talk about that. What I've called this section is the skull and the speech. Sir Balan Swan arrives with the skull claimed to belong to Sir Gregor, and a feast is held, which we see through the eyes, not of that skull, but of Ariel Hotal via, it would be weird though, if we saw it through the skull. <laughs> in the Watcher chapter, Doran commands that the box containing the skull be opened, and Maester Calliot brings it from Sir Balon to him. Ariane is sitting to one side of Prince Doran, Ilaria on the other, and here's what happened next. Quote. A hush had fallen across the hall. Doran holds its breath. Master Calliot set the box on the floor beside Prince Doran's chair. The maester's fingers, normally so sure and deft, turned clumsy as he worked the latch and opened the lid, reveal the skull within. Hotel heard someone clear his throat. One of the Fowler twins whispered something to the other. Alaria San had closed her eyes and was murmuring a prayer. I wonder what she's praying for. It might be to that Lysine love goddess, but might not be. It might just be like, I hope this doesn't, you know, may this, may he be at rest. May this help put him at rest. May this not provoke more violence. I don't know, but there's a lot of things. It's not hard to think that there's plenty of things that would be on her mind that would she want to pray for. Yeah, I think she's praying that this will be the end. Okay, you got Gregor's head. Now we're done. That's what everyone wanted, right? We got it, right? Yeah. This should be enough, right? And Tywin is dead by then, too. That's important yeah. as well. Like, Tywin was killed by Tyrion uh, in the yeah. most embarrassing, ignoble way, like, after the result of that duel. So it's all kind of connected to that. So some people might even, like, give partial credit to the Red Viper for stirring that scene of a, the, the series of events that led to Tyrion killing Tywin, you know? So they could give him a little bit of a, a point for that. So, but also her, I mean, her daughters are now fatherless. I mean, there's a lot, just gonna be a ton of things on her mind. Uh, yeah, maybe praying for peace, protection, anything. Just emotionally devastating loss. You know, it's, it's not hard to think that there'd be a lot on her mind. So we don't know what it was, but there's a lot of things, poss possibly. Now, perhaps she's praying for, like you said, Sean, for peace. And, and that's, that comes up here. She, the thing that Doran says a few minutes later of Sir Gregor, quote, I only pray that now he is burning in some hell and the Elia and her children are at peace. This is the justice that Dorne has hungered for. I'm glad that I lived long enough to taste it. At long last, the Lannisters have proved the truth of their boast and paid this old blood debt. So he wants the cycle of violence to end too. He quotes at one point his unnamed mother telling him at the Water Gardens, look at these children. 
consider them first in all that you do. So Alaria's probably uh, subscribes to that way of thinking. And I wonder if, well, not if, I wonder what conversations Doran and Ilaria had upon her return to Dorne with Oberyn's body. And if they talked about the dangers that are coming or just, just supported each other a bit because Doran doesn't really include her in his plans going forward, understandably. Uh, partly because she doesn't want to want to be a part of it, and partly because she has other concerns. Partly because she's not ambitious or political. And do you think there's any chance they had a conversation off screen? Oh yeah, like, I do. And I, that I, he knows, so he knows her sentiment already at this point that she's, you know, a peacemonger. <laughs> yeah, a peacemonger. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when the toast is made to King Tommen, many do not drink. Hota is very aware. He's looking around, trying to see who drinks, who doesn't. And the others don't. <laughs> but Ilaria does. Ilaria drinks to peace. And she's sitting at the high table. So it's very notable that she drinks to peace. And, and so does Doran. Well, actually, Doran doesn't because he doesn't drink at all. He drinks his own. He doesn't drink wine. He drinks his own. So he was like, he has an excuse to not drink. Is he's He drinks his poppy juice separately. So, but it's still a signal of her attitude. A lot of people in the hall, she's at the high table. She's drinking very like openly and, and toasting the, to peace and all that. But not everyone necessarily knows what an advocate for peace she is. I don't know if everyone in the room is aware of her position. Maybe they become aware of it later, but how outspoken had she been about this prior? We don't, we don't know. But she's still declaring it very openly through, through her action. And maybe she's trying to set an example. Like even if, if, if Oberyn's, the person Oberyn was closest to, or the two people Oberyn was closest to can put this away, then maybe they should too. Most of them probably won't, but it helps probably. Might, might change a few people's minds. She needs to be the one to set the example. You know, whether it works yes. or not, if it's going to work, it, the hope is in her and Doran. There's no one else that can do it. And the flip side is if she's like calling for blood, she'll get it. Like, they, yeah. <laughs> so just by not doing it, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So not only does she live out this attitude, or at least she starts to, because again, we don't know when it began for her, but she provides us with possibly the best conversation on the topic of cycles of violence. Now, this comes a little later when they are looking at the skull after the event is over and they're in private. So George gives this great speech to her, this conversation. First, it starts with Obara saying, quote, She gave the skull a mocking kiss. This is a start, I'll grant. A start, said Ilaria Sand, incredulous. Gods forbid. I would it were a finish. Tywin Lannister is dead. So are Robert Baratheon. Amory Lorch, and now Gregor Clegane, all those who had a hand in murdering Elia and her children. Even Joffrey, who was not yet born when Elia died. I saw the boy perish with mine own eyes, clawing at his throat as he tried to draw a breath. Who else is there to kill? Do Marcella and Tommen need to die so the shades of Rhaenys and Aegon can be at rest? Where does it end? It ends in blood as it begins, said Lady Nim. It ends when Casterly Rock is cracked open so the sun can shine on the maggots and worms within. It ends with the utter ruin of Tywin Lannister and all his works. The man died at the hand of his own son, Alaria snapped back. What more could you wish? I mean, seriously, she's so right. Like, what more? Like, it, it really is like a good, if this isn't a stopping point, like. I want to <laughs> I want to point out here, I think uh, I had it here, the, the next line. Her answer is, 
I could wish that he died at my hand. Yeah. It's not that they just want vengeance. It's they want to get vengeance. They want to be the ones that do it. It's not enough for vengeance to be done or even for them to win the battle. They want to be the ones, they being, you know, people who were hell-bent on vengeance and not thinking about peace or the children or all the other things that should be higher priorities, that they want to get it themselves. Or even not thinking about how it's a much sweeter vengeance, again, for your own for his own son to kill him that was an epic like that is bad like that's epic seems, failure yeah. yeah that seems better than you killing him yeah i agree like it's like it's like vengeance it's like they're treating it like it was a pie they didn't get a slice of you know yeah. <laughs> it's like hey i didn't get my slice it's like yeah but the pie was distributed and it's it was a good pie it was a very good pie <laughs> but no uh there's a wrinkle here which is that they aren't worried about the skull ultimately because there doesn't seem to be any point to switching the heads they talk about it they're like hey is this really Gregor's skull, you know? And they're like, what purpose would there be to fooling us about the skull? Like, I, we, for A, Gregor definitely was poisoned by the, the manticore venom. So there's no doubt that dude died, right? And what's the point of switching the skulls? Like, what could possibly be the point of that? Well, we know magic, maybe necromancy or something that might be involved, but they can't conceive of that possibility. So they're like, yeah, it's just, might not be his skull but why would she do that and and yeah they they they, because there's no good answer they they kind of leave it at that but we do know that it's probably not gregor's skull and uh (laughs) so that will be upsetting again later that'll come back up later when the two of the sand snakes go to king's landing and are like all right who's the eight footer the other (laughs) eight footer yeah Yeah. (laughs) on the king's guard you say yeah I, I did speculate that Ilaria might have wondered, do they have another Gregor? You know, what are they going to come at us with? You know, even if somehow we fight them off, it's not worth it. Yeah, what is her reaction going to be? Because she will find out eventually that actually this dude's walking around. Like, she's like, what's she going to make of that? She's like, how is that? Like, what? <laughs> A lot of people are going to be confused over that. And that's all the more reason to make peace. Like, even when we kill their giant warrior, they still have the giant warrior. Comes back? As a walking zombie, yeah, that's uh, we maybe we shouldn't be messing with them. <laughs> they might be above our, they might be above our weight class. There, <laughs> so there is another uh, paragraph that Ilaria says after the change of "I want it to be me." You know, I, I didn't get to any vengeance personally. So the conclusion of her plea to remember these are her paramours, three eldest children. Remember, Sorella's not there, and Sorella's the fourth. She's off at Old Town, being Alaris, the Sphinx. They seem dead set on their path. This is her final plea to get them to stop. Quote, Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters. My Elia is 14, almost a woman. Obella is 12, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you, as Dorea and Loreza worship them. If you should die, must Elia and Obella seek vengeance for you, then Dorea and Loreza for them? Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I am old and sick? There should be like a pamphlet distributed to all of Westeros. <laughs> like, right? Like, just get an hilarious sand, <laughs> the screed of a 
someone who knows, right? <laughs> a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of people should be taught this. <laughs> Maybe in the real world too. Like a lot of, a lot of people could, <laughs> could take a lesson from that. So then she pretty much walks out after that. She's like, I'm done. You know, you all aren't listening. I can't hear this bloodthirstiness anymore. I'm done. And then Nim immediately declares after Ilaria leaves, she's like, oh, our father loved, like, she loved our father and he loved her, but she didn't understand him. Oh, come on. That's like one of the most naive things I've ever heard. Like, you're telling me that your father's 15 year plus partner, like they've been together that long and didn't understand him. (laughs) That's what she thought of her stepmom, obviously. You know. <laughs> yeah. Not unusual, I think, for a daughter like That's that to true. be like, I know my dad and you don't know my dad. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yes, the stepmom kind of thing or not stepmom. It's not like that. Other, you're not married, yeah. but like, I still don't think it's like it's childish. It's not mature. Like it's, You're right to point it out that it's wrong, but I think it's accurate to the human experience you're right yeah. yeah you're right to point out that rub i i didn't take note of that you're totally right to point that out that is a thing <laughs> and doran then looks at her like are you nuts <laughs> he doesn't say that but he's like uh c- kind of corrects her he's like you know a good heart and a gentle mind you know it may be all that it's it maybe worth more than this blah 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 he's like you should reconsider what you just said basically he puts it diplomatically but he like Gives her a look like it is worth noting. <laughs> she wants revenge. Oberon wanted revenge. Like she, there's a difference between understanding and agreeing. But that that's what yeah. where she's coming from. And Doran, even though he's kind of a, I don't know, putting her in check, he has ulterior motives. He also wants peace and doesn't want this revenge thing to take hold. So he's not going to say you're right. Oberon did want revenge. He's he's not going to get that. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, actually, I'm going to have to side with the Sand Snakes on this one, Laria. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he did, I mean, he did raise them to be fighters, the older ones. I mean, he, and including Elia, who, you know, and, and uh, Obella as well. It's like Obella is, swings her morning star at orange trees and stuff, we're told. It's, it's kind of cute, but also like mm, a little bit, you know. <laughs> Like shows how they were educated. And Nina writes, this is a, it's a reflective of how, you know, you can have two people who really love someone that are really in deeply in, in someone's life and they have very different views on them. It's, it's, it's also very human, right? Like, like Ashea was correct to bring up the thing about uh, other, you know, stepmoms or the equivalent in this case. This is a thing, right? You have people that think they know someone really well, but have never seen this other side of them because they, that, side only comes out with these other individuals or people they have a different type of relationship with, which is why we can't be sure Oberyn included Ilaria in some of his like most violent plottings or some of his stuff. Doesn't mean she didn't. We just don't assume it right now. The Nina also makes a a nice comparison here with Ned, Uh, Rob and Catelyn both clearly loved him. They reacted to his death very differently. Like Catelyn still wanted to was Ilaria ish here. Like she at first was more about being aggressive, but then, you know, as this war started, started to get going, she was like, wait, this is too far. This isn't what I wanted. I, I, we want peace actually, (laughs) but that ship had sailed already by then. So this is another, like this makes a good pair, a parallel to Ilaria, especially if we're right that Ilaria had a bit of an about face after Oberyn's death and was like, oh, I wasn't such an advocate for peace before. Now I am that I've seen both sides of it. And after I've seen Joffrey dying in front of me and my, my, my paramour dying in front of me, Catelyn may have been more gung-ho about getting revenge and justice for Bran until she saw like, oh, the Riverlands was just, was annihilated and there's all this stuff is happening. Like 
maybe it's just better if we just try to find peace now. Like, this is too much. This has gone too far. But of course, it's not her fault. But it was also too late. Also, uh, to make the parallel more, Callan's realizing that her children are at risk because of this, right? Like, I yeah. lost my husband. Yeah. That sucks. It's terrible. I want revenge. In order to get revenge, now I'm going to lose my children also. Okay, never mind. I don't want revenge. I'd rather have my children than revenge. Yes. Yeah. When she realized that, I mean, she may, not have, she may have had some of his cockiness, or maybe she had it in her, on her own too, and they, they fueled each other with that. And then, and then reality check, you know, comes along. So we can wonder what she would think if she knew Doran had them swear to follow his plans, meaning them, meaning the Sand Snakes, on, his, on their father's bones. Because as much as he openly advocates for peace in that scene where the skull is presented, he can't actually do that yet because he finds out that Cersei's planning to murder Tristane. Like, it's definitely not over yet. Like, they can't just rest and sit back and be like, we're not part of this. Not only is Quentin over there trying to, like, get Danny on their team, which obviously that didn't work, but it's not necessarily the end of the potential between a Dornish uh, Daenerys alliance. Regardless, that's, that's a much later thing. Either way, she, he can't just take a step back and be like, we're not involved because Cersei is aggressively coming after them. Uh, so he doesn't tell Ilaria any of this. Like when Ilaria leaves the room because of the bloodthirstiness that she's just done with hearing about, that's when he pivots to like, okay, well, Ilaria is right about some things, but I'm not telling her about this part. There's no reason to include her in any of this news. She's seen enough. She's been affected enough, but this is what's happening. Cersei wants to kill Tristane. And they're like, what? They're so shocked. And Arya Hota is like, I wouldn't have thought it possible to shock the Sand Snakes, but here we are, you know? And of course, what's happening for that is let's, re let's review the plans. The two of them are going to King's Landing, right? And then Obara is going to High Hermitage with Arya Hota. Whatever happens, Ilaria is going to find out, right? Whatever happens at High Hermitage, whatever happens in King's Landing, whatever else happens in, King, uh, in Sunspear, news will reach the hellhole. They're in, they're connected. They're important house in Dorne and Harmon Uller wants to be a part of things. And she, the reason that's important is that's where she went. She went back to the hellhole. She is there now, as far as we know, with one of her daughters, only one of them, Lareza, who is the youngest, seven years old. So in terms of outlook, I think she's a rare character where I feel pretty optimistic about her survival because she's not obviously involved because she's very far from the others because she's not likely to make an enemy of any dragons or Dothraki or <laughs> uh, young Griff's team. The golden company probably isn't going to go anywhere near the hell hole. Right. And like Arianne's up there dealing with them, but she's not in harm's way. She doesn't put herself in harm's way. Hell's hole right. is probably not a target for anyone. So like, he may lead their forces elsewhere, but she won't go with them. She'd stay there, right? She's, again, not a warrior. There's no reason for her to go with. It's not like she's rooted there permanently. There might be a reason for her to leave. There could be a reason for her to go somewhere else. But there's no obvious, like, oh, this will draw her out. This thing that's coming will happen, and that'll bring her out. But no, there's just nothing that's that clear. So her daughter, Lareza, also because she's with her and is so young, I, I'm pretty optimistic about her, too. Real quick, here's a good chance to drop the Lareza name theory, which is that, okay, consider the four names of... My favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, I think this would perk you up a little bit. Uh, Ilaria's first three daughters are Elia, Obella, and Dorea. 
presumably Elia is named for Elia, the door, um, their, the sister. Obella's named for Oberyn and Dorea for Doran. So there's one daughter for each of the three sips, uh, the three of them, the three siblings, that that group. So one for each of them. So if they were to name their next child after another family member, the most likely one is their mother, who was the princess of Dorne. She wasn't the con, the, the their father was the consort, so he was not Martell, and she was. So these she's the mo- most likely, especially because it's girl to woman, but also because she was the actual princess. So uh, to be fair, we don't know their father's name or house either, <laughs> but obviously the princess of Dorne is a much more important figure. So it's a bummer. We don't know who that was, but Lorraine is a great guess for her name. And, and who came up with that theory, Shea? I've been seeing it from like people like Joanna Lannister and, and folks in Tumblr circles for okay. as long as I've been in this, in this fandom, to be yeah. honest, because we have a long standing conversations about the unnamed princess of Dorne and about the dead ladies club and about all that. And yeah, people, I, I, I believe I, I'll attribute it. I think it was Joanna Lannister. I think who I, that's kind of what I thought too, but I, I didn't want, I wasn't yeah, positive. I believe that I was where I first saw it. Cause I, her and I, like we've both asked George this question at, um, panels at q a's uh i asked him and he gave me the one of the most disappointing answers i've ever gotten which is well she's dead uh <laughs> promptly right after he read a whole section about dead characters <laughs> so okay but uh so but joanna uh lauren uh she did not take that for an answer either and we <laughs> went to another q a a few years later and uh we were in like uh, redwood city in california and that's when i asked about blood raven uh, but she asked specifically about the Loreza theory. Like she, u- she used that theory. She's like, I'm going to come at it from a different angle. I'm going to give him the theory and he can choose he to can like. He seize on that if he And he yeah. just was like, I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. He just didn't it. know. So Loreza's seven is the, or Loreza's seven, like I said, with uh, Ilaria at the hellhole. Dorea is age eight and she's at the water gardens. This, I'm a little more nervous about her because I'm a little wary of what might happen at the water gardens later. I mean, she's an eight year old child. So it's not as likely that harm will come to her, but this is, this is, that's not something I, you would want to bet on too much in this story. Can I point out how grim it is that we, when, when we consider the outlook of characters, that the default question is, will they live or not? Even when we're yeah. talking about children, <laughs> eight-year-olds swimming yeah. in the pools, like yeah, she might not <laughs> make their it. Their <laughs> probably death. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't look great for her. No, I, I, she's probably going to be okay, but I do worry a little bit because there, we gave a, a theory about the water gardens. It's not a super strong theory. It's more of a head cannon, like a things that line up. Makes me a little seems a little ominous. But we lay that out in Nymeria Part One, the Mother Roin episode. Some comparisons to some things that got destroyed and the water gardens uh so might just be a, a reach there but i hope it is i hope it's a theory that's wrong but it is i will at least be able to claim credit for it if we're right <laughs> we're like well either we're wrong and oh, this eight-year-old girl survives or she doesn't and we at least get to be right about our theory like <laughs> obella who is age 12 is now cupbearer to the Castellan's wife at Sunspear. The Castellan is a Martell, Manfrey Martell. He's very old. He's he's so old that he's like, I think he might be blind. I oh, know that's the Seneschal, Ricasso. But Manfrey Martell is an older man. Anyway, I'm concerned about anyone in Sunspear. Like Sunspear, st- stuff could happen there. But still, I'm not super worried about it because I, I really don't think armies are coming to Dorne. And if they do, it'll be Danny. And I don't think Danny's going to be like shredding the Dornish up, like ripping them apart. You know what I mean? Especially not children. So I'm not too worried about that. But there is all, you know, you got to acknowledge the potential danger there. And she, like I said, in that quote from Ilaria, 
Obella and Elia worship Obara, Nymeria, and Tyene, their eldest. Which she doesn't mention Sorella in that. Like, do they not worship Sorella? <laughs> 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 Maybe not. They just not know her. Sorella's kind of been always off doing her own thing, and they just don't know her very well. They might <laughs> like her quite a bit if they knew her better, but yeah. Can I also say, we're talking about, we're talking about the naming thing. Yeah. I always love that Oberyn named two daughters after himself. <laughs> Loved himself the most of yeah, all. Obara and Obella. Yeah, yeah he has Obara <laughs> and Obella. He's like, you know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you gotta like that. Yeah, he's, he's uh, two for me, one for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so we're not sure about the Sorella thing there. That's kind of a funny omission. Like, again, Sorella is just not included there. But no, it's just because she's she's her own person. She's a good example of someone who is independent. Like, Sorella does her own thing. She's not wrapped up in these politics yet. She wants to be a maester. Well, she's kind of following in her footstep, her, her father's footsteps a bit by doing that. But, yeah, because Oberyn went to the Citadel, too. So, again, Elia is with Arianne, a notable part of her two Winds of Winter chapters so far, which we've covered both uh, individual episodes for. And Elia has major Lyanna vibes, major Lyanna Stark vibes, like down to being good with horses, down to being wild and aggressive, down to being promiscuous, flirty, all that. Well, actually, we don't know Lyanna was promiscuous, but she was probably not like shy about sexual matters. So and then there's this. So being compared to Lyanna is not a good thing as far as your outlook for survival. <laughs> that's like that's a tragic figure, right? Like, uh oh, uh, but there's and there's also this ominous moment in the caves where it's like. Where you can't do that. You can't just go off like that. You could die, die, die. And it echoes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, whoa, <laughs> that's not subtle, is it? <laughs> so wait, who are you talking about? Is that she? Wait, who's gonna die? All of you or just one? Or no, I don't know, but it's yeah. I would say it's hard to imagine all of Ilaria's children surviving. And if you had to pick one that might die, it's gonna be this one. Elia is with Ariane, who herself is Ariane's survival also is very much in doubt. Uh, Characters that do put themselves in harm's way. Yes, very much in harm's way and could be going headlong into the arms of young Griff, Fagon, Aegon VI, which that won't end well, I don't think. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's hard to imagine all of Ilari's kids living, but hey, we could be wrong. It'd be great. It'd be a nice little nugget of happiness at the end of the story if you had some characters you could look at and go you know what they came out all right you know yeah she's had her she's already been heavily traumatized so she doesn't need any more so it's not like she's gonna come out that great you know she's already lost her lover but it doesn't have to get too much worse for her so uh, yeah so fairly positive outlook going forward even if you know she still has to live with, with, with what's happened so far and of course doran is going to go through a lot before it's all said and done Let's talk really briefly about the TV show. Obviously, it was very different just to, to acknowledge this because there's not mu as much to say because it was so different of characters who were included on the show, but changed as opposed as opposed to cut entirely. So I'm not counting Stoneheart, which is kind of a gray area because Catelyn was included, but I'm not counting like Arianne or Victorian. So characters who were included, she's probably, if not possibly, if not definitely the most changed, the most opposite from her book character in some ways it's a very simple change just make her the exact opposite other than like her gender you know she's still a woman but like everything else is the opposite like she's an out instead of an outspoken advocate for peace she becomes a person so bent on revenge that she's willing to murder her lover's brother like she's willing to murder oberon i mean adoran because just in, in her quest to get revenge for oberon it's like and to talk her daughters into it not that they needed much convincing but also those aren't her daughters in the book those are the elder sand snakes are her daughters in the show but 
they aren't in the book. So that's a pretty huge change as well. You know, like you're saying, though, if we're looking to this for potential clues, will some other character who is hell bent on revenge be willing to murder Doran? Is that something that could that's come entirely about? possible? Yeah. I think we've theorized that that will be Darkstar, who was not in the show, and the per the person that is already sort of leading the anti like leading Doran into war and do going against the Prince of Doran's wishes. So he might be, he, maybe he turns these, maybe he somehow wins against Hota and Obara, maybe even brings Obara onto his side somehow. And then they go after Doran. So that could happen. Yeah, something like that could happen. It just won't involve Ilaria, quite, yeah. quite obviously. And because, and, and the ending that Ilaria and was it Nymeria? Which, which of the daughter, which of the daughters died in prison with her? It doesn't matter. One of them die, the two die together in prison there. And, and, Ilaria has to see her daughter die and then sit there with her corpse forever. It's possible that's maybe what happens to the two sand snakes that are going to like maybe Nymeria and Tyene who are going to King's Landing. Maybe something like that happens to them while they're up there. So that could happen. It just won't be Ilaria. It'll be one of them instead. So just like I don't expect all of Ilaria's four daughters to survive, although I wouldn't be surprised if three of them did. Obara, Nymeria, Tyene, Sorella, all four of them surviving seems very unlikely. Sorella's probably got the best odds because she's the least involved in violent stuff, but she's also right where Euron's about to strike. So that's just not necessarily in a great place either. Uh, she's not seeking danger out at least. <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe that gives her a little leg up, but it's all going to come down to the whim of the creator. Meaning George R. R. Martin. <laughs> maybe not the whim. The, I was going to say, I hesitate to call it a whim. It seems like a very deliberate. Yeah. Planned and plotted out. Yes, it's not the whim. It could be a whim, <laughs> but it probably won't be. Yeah, so it's it is possible some of those TV arcs or simplified versions of what they got from George. You know, different character like Dark. Like I said, Darkstar doing what the vindictive version of Ilaria is doing. Just the law of conservation of characters. But that's got nothing to do with Book Ilaria directly. Uh, it's possible as well that uh, you know something changes or we find something we haven't thought of. You know, they they get brought up in. In a couple of weeks, we're going to cover. An episode. We're going to do an episode on some of George's notes that have been unearthed, uh, and that is actually going to touch on some of this stuff, which is interesting. So, we'll, so hold some of your. So if you, some of y'all may have some unaddressed thoughts that we may address in that, which which includes some of the theories and, and things that are going on here. Also, I want to, as we make our way out of this episode, I want to shout out Indira Varma, the actress who played Ilaria Sand, even though she was not what we wanted from that character, given she was so much different from the book version. It's almost like it's really hard to see. A character that is so different and unique as an advocate for peace being turned into the opposite of that because you want that to be present in the story. We want the, the peace advocate is such an important thing in a story about the horrors of war. I mean, that's not the only thing it's about, of course, but it's just an overwhelming theme is that war is terrible and that all this power is terrible and that not having that character was a was frustrating. And you know, despite that, I still picture Indira Varma as Ilaria Sand when I when I, I read scenes with her. So despite her not actually playing that character really, I see her. I, I do too. Her. Like the whale, like the the scream when Oberyn die, uh, dies is just like that is she's such a good actress. So let's go through. Uh, she is now fifty years old. She's uh, lives in England. She was in the show Rome. She was in the show Obi Wan. She was she was in Mission Impossible. She's in the as of current season of Doctor Who, which is season 14 as of this episode. Uh, she did voices for Dragon Age Inquisition, Mass Effect Andromeda, World of Warcraft Battle for Azeroth. And she's currently recording the witches novels of Terry Pratchett, 
which are not out yet, but she's like the narrator for that, or at least playing a part of it. I'm not sure if it's like full audio production or not, but yeah, she's great. Looking forward to seeing her in more things in the future. She's also popular. Um, I guess maybe, yeah, you didn't say it, uh, in Vox Machina, oh, which yeah, is okay. not something I watch, but I know is popular among listeners of ours. Right on, cross right section. You know. So yeah, so she, that's a, a really good look, like what you're saying, Ashea, like that's a good example. That's a kind of a, a real testament to her skills. Like we did not like what that character, how that character was written, but she still owned the role <laughs> <laughs> and she's still memorable in it. It was like, man, that plot line, very forgettable, except her. Yeah, like she just, just some people just have, <laughs> they're just that good, you know? <laughs> no shame, no shade on the other actors in that plot line, you know, especially like Alexander Sadiq, who's a fantastic actor that's just given this role that was just kind of. God, Alexander Sadiq was one of the most popularly fan-casted characters, like actors for Doran Martell. Like so many people thought that's who it, Doran should be, and yet, uh, no. Nope, what yep. a waste. Yeah, even he's like, even he's a little salty about it afterwards. Like he's 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 like diplomatic about it. But you can tell he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, people, like a few times, there's like quotes in like magazines or on YouTube or little clips. It's like he's just. Yeah. I mean, that's what they did. Many, they made their choices, you know. Yeah, think about how many people might have been in his like DMs or his comments. They're like, Doran's such a cool character. Like he has so much. He's gonna do, you know. Like, he probably <laughs> was influenced by the fandom to expect yeah. more too. Yeah. So bummer, <laughs> big bummer. <laughs> Remember, at you know when the show was on, I hadn't read the books yet, and you know up through mm. season four, I was excited about these Dornish characters, yeah. Dobron and Elia, Laurie and so on. You, yeah, I mean, when I got so to season five, still. I was like immediately, even though like we were trying to be positive and tactful, but I was still so, so frustrated by the Sand Snakes scenes and baffled even. <laughs> like, I, and, and I didn't have this expectation of how great it was in the books to be upset. I mean, even without that, I was still frustrated and baffled. So I can't yeah, it was just regular that. bad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the trivia answer. Where did Oberyn Martell foster at? It's House Corgyle, the sands, Castle Sandstone. Again, he tells the scorpion story. It's nice. It fits so well there that he was fostered there. He's the one that tells the scorpion story. It fits nicely into a little anecdote about it. He's like, I'd rather have the scorpions than Cersei. Smoothly done, George. A good example of how well he slides in historical anecdotes, makes them fit in without it being like a big divergence from what else is happening. It's yeah, it just fits so nicely. Good example of that. We will, of course, be back next week. In the meantime, here are some other episodes you might want to check out. The Ariane Winds of Winter chapters are a good example. The two of those, there's a uh, very fun to talk about what's coming. Nymeria, of course, the Mother Roin episode. I'm not talking about Nymeria the Sand Snake. This is the Nymeria, as aka the first princess of United Dorn and Hardcore Houses, which was just last week. We talked about Corgyle and, and Uller and, and Umber and Mormont. Those aren't mentioned in this episode, but they're part of that one. And I probably mentioned some other ones that I'm now forgetting about because, you know, our, our discussions, you never know exactly where they're going to go. We have a lot of notes. This was a 19 page document for this episode, but there's always a few things that, that we talk about that we didn't plan for. Sometimes that's other episodes. So I know there's always a one or two that I, oh, like the Lyseni episode. We talked about Lise quite a bit in this one. And uh, that is also one we have an episode on. Sean, would you like to acquire a cat while we're uh, doing our outro here? I could do that. Give me Sean a Sean gives a, he gave a knowing nod for those of you not looking. He's like, yes, a cat. Oh yeah, I've got a cat right down here. A cat of black and white, in fact. 
So thank you all to those of you who are supporters of us, whether you do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash history of Westeros, or if you are a Spotify supporter, you can sign up directly through Spotify. If you already have a Spotify subscription, you can kind of just seamlessly combine the two things. Look at that, a cat of black and white. I will rub the belly. He has quite a bib. He's a good boy. A big boy. Thanks as well to Nina. Congrats again to Nina for her pending nuptials for her recent engagement. And as well to James, her partner. Thanks to Joey and Jesse for the music. Thanks to Bran, the builder, for being a part of our front-end technology, our intro for House of the Dragon. Here's Xerxes, the cat, also on screen. And Sean's got a cat. So also thank you to Michael Klarfeld for our video intro and for the maps you see behind me. Not for the posters you see behind Sean. Michael Klarfeld did not design the movie posters for either Star Wars or Amelie. So, you know, set the record straight on that one. And thanks as well to our engineer. But he could have. He could have, yeah. Sean has the skills for that, yeah. <laughs> he chose not to. <laughs> oh, look at that. Getting nose bumps there from your kitty. Well, with that little bit of sweetness, <laughs> we shall leave you until next time. We hope you'd enjoyed this episode on the peaceable and mm, respectable, I'd say, a person to be like, Ilaria Sand. Rarely is there a character that I say, be more like them <laughs> in the story. It's hard, but she is a good example of that. Perhaps one of the top ones. So be more like Ilaria in real life, and we'll see you next time. Until then, Valar Reredus.